What's up, Marvelous Demystifiers? I love my new intro, but I, uh, you know, I made a custom one just for the Loki series we're doing. I seem to have skipped a step where I needed to compress the video because StreamYard got a little touchy about playing it. Next time it'll run smoothly. But I'm really glad that we're doing this. I had a bit of a scheduling mishap with, you know, I consider it a little fortunate because this is actually a lot of fun. But the Interverse episode that was going to be tonight wound up fa not falling through per se, but being postponed. So that's going to be a great one. I can't wait for that one. A little preview. It's all about Ophiuchus <laughs> deep dive. But in the meantime, as fortune would have it, we've got this awesome Loki series ongoing. And I don't see any reason not to keep striking while the fire is hot or the iron's hot or what have you. <laughs> so here we are. Me and Slick ready to break this one down. Episode three of season one of Loki. This episode is called Lamentus. And I don't think that we can really waste time. I think we got to get right into it because there's so much to talk about. I try to be concise, but oh my gosh, it will be 30 or 45 minutes in before we even get past probably the first 10 seconds of the show. <laughs> It's really fun. So if you guys have been along on the journey so far, awesome. If not, we're going to be giving a, a nice overview of sort of like a blow by blow of the plot, at least enough that you're going to understand it. And even if Marvel or comic book TV shows or movies ain't your thing, as always, this series is an incredible launching uh, launch pad, really, for us to talk about symbolism and the keys to the esoteric system, the mystery school. So, I mean, that's what I love about it. Because <laughs> there's so many different facets of of this mythos and of this religion, of this universal priestcraft. And to, it's like, how do you even begin explaining it to people? You know, how do you take what's in your head, Gabe, and put it in the heads of the other people? All of the syncretism. I don't really know where to start, but when you have an allegory to work from, that's a great framework for us to be able to discuss these things and teach about these things. And I think that's why the scriptures were always in allegory form in the first place, because that's like the the best way to do it. So whether or not you're comic book nerds or fans, you're going to like this conversation. It's going to be fun. Tell your friend. <laughs> Dylan's on it. Lamented one. Bacchus much. Dude, it's so Bacchus. This whole episode is <laughs> welcome to the, the Bacchus show where you get to find out that Loki is actually Bacchus. Yeah. So what's up, Gabe? How you doing, man? Good evening. Yeah, glorious, wonderful, awesome. Uh, I'm super stoked for this. Uh, yeah, this one really has a very uh, crystal clear conveyance that I think we got it. We got our finger on the pulse. So I'm stoked to to bring this one forward. Um, uh, yeah, because uh, you mentioned the adjustment card, and when you told me adjustment card, I like. I knew exactly where to focus all of the symbolic potentiality. Uh, Cause this is where he meets his other self. He kind of, uh, this other Loki, this renegade Loki is kind of like his animus, you know? So there's a, there's kind of a come, come to Jesus dealing with the shadow. All these things are kind of intrinsic and, uh, and how mercurial, of course, that there have to be multiple Lokis. Yeah, the twin symbolism. Gotta have it. The Gemini character. So as you see here, the name of this episode is Lamentus. And let's get right into it. 
So when we hear the word lamentous, I don't know about you, but the first thing I think of is the book of lamentations of the Bible, right? (laughs) So here's a couple of images of the prophet Jeremiah lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. We'll talk about both of these things before we even get into the episode, because these are frameworks that are necessary if that's the allegory, and it definitely is. One thing I want to point out here is the holding of the head, the lamentation posture that he's got going on here. Um, I may have even missed a few times where it popped up, but I definitely was had my eyes peeled for that. And I think that there's at least one or two other times that it shows up. So Jeremiah, the prophet, let's let's talk about that. That name Jeremiah is Yah, Ra, Maya, or Maya. <laughs> so you have the the God or the Lord, Yah, and then Ra, the Son, and then Maya or Maya. That's illusion or the name of the mother of Buddha, the name of the mother of Mercury. In Hebrew, the name Jeremiah is Yir. Yer Maya Hu. Yer Maya Hu. Also, sometimes they, they spell it with like that Yahoo uh, phonetic, which is. Anyway, <laughs> the other thing about the Jere, J E R A, of Jeremiah, that's potentially you could also say that's hiero, as in sacred, like hieroglyphics, sacred writing. So, Jeremiah, hiero Maya the sacred Maya, sacred mother. Now the book of Lamentations is a collection of poetic laments for the destruction of Jerusalem. And the motifs of a traditional Mesopotamian city lament are evident in the book, such as mourning, the desertion of the city by God, its destruction, and then later the ultimate return of the divinity. So big time allegory here. Uh, There's also, you know, there's also a, lamentation of the sacrificed or the the fallen deity that resurrects that's part of lamentations when we bring that word up you know i got to point out there's a there's a time pad a temp pad shape right there under his hand the shadow of that archway is in the shape the iconic shape of the temp pad which is going to be the MacGuffin of this episode on the black and white in the black and white sketch. If you look, go up a little right there, the shape of the shadow on that archway is the mm. shape of one of the temp pads, which is the MacGuffin of this, the episode, which from my read, I, th- I think the temp pad is the Fornax constellation for a thousand different reasons, but I just wanted to bring that shape into people's minds. It's fascinating that when you look up lamentations, you find an image that is correspondent to the temp pad. That is really fascinating. You weren't even, you know, you're looking at this not through the eyes of Loki and you're still finding iconic shadow play in the art. Hmm. Uh, Jenny says, isn't it interesting that seemingly the only variant consistently being traced by the TVA in this show are Loki variants? Only the Bacchus figure can transcend time. That's actually a really good point. And when you look at Bacchus or Dionysus in his form as Phanes or Mithras as Phanes, 
we'll we'll bring Fanny's up later. But that's the character that is born from the Orphic egg, and that egg was laid by Kronos or Time, or created by Time or Brahma, uh, depending on <laughs> depending on which system. But it's all the same mythos in different cultures. So in the Book of Lamentations, uh, there's a couple of verses here that I'll pull up that demonstrate the astrotheology of this book and thus inform us on what to look out for symbolically in this episode. This is all from chapter one of the five or book one of Lamentations of the five books. The ways of Zion do mourn because none come to the solemn feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted and she is in bitterness. The Lord hath trodden underfoot all my mighty men in the midst of me. He hath called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord hath trodden the virgin, the daughter of Judah, as in a winepress. Behold, O Lord, for I am in distress. My bowels are troubled. <laughs> Mine heart is turned within me, for I have grievously rebelled. Abroad, the sword bereaveth. At home there is death. So, we're astrotheologically, we're in the transition from Virgo to Libra, in my opinion, or just that general time period from the the hot part of the summer leo but after the sun starting to decline to the gates of judgment in libra so leo virgo libra those three i mean heart is the leo part of the zodiac man the bowels that's virgo the, my bowels are troubled <laughs> so we also need to talk about the lamentations of tamas that's a huge one so here's Tamas from the Sumerian, the Sumerian system, if you will, the also known as the Muzi in the Mesopotamian religion. He's the God of fertility, embodying the powers for new life and nature in the spring. And it's obvious, you know, with these, with this imagery that Tamas looks a lot like Osiris. He was known as a shepherd. He has an underworld cycle with his sister, very similar to the Demeter story. Very important to this. And another good comment from Dylan, Bacchus is time, Saturn slash Kronos. And if you look at the status quo, they believe they're all the same accounts of Noah called by other names by different cultures. I'm actually going to quote a thing that's in one of your books, Dylan, uh, where I can't remember which book it was. I think it might be July's end. I guess I didn't make a note of it, but it's one of the spirit world books where you quote Thomas Hyde in Eternia Mundi. Oh, wait, it's a God's Acre. Okay, book four of Spirit World. So this is maybe a truncated quote, but Thomas Hyde, I believe a, a church father, says, There Osiris, by another name, was called Bacchus, the so-called weeping. Among the Sabians, the people of Phoenicia, it is celebrated in the middle of the month of Tammuz, the Lamentations. That's July. It was the feast of Bokat, of weeping women, which was celebrated in favor of Tammuz. But the women wept for him, as his master slew him, and he smashed his bones in a millstone, and afterwards scattered them in pieces. Of course, they understand the sun by the name of Tammuz. But the prophet Ezekiel mentions this institution in chapter 8 of the women who mourned for Tammuz, or the sun, whose month of July was sacred, and was named by him with uh, Tammuz, the Syrian of the Phoenicians, since the month was very hot and filled with the sun. But the sun's departure, 
because it then begins to decline, they lamented, feigning that he was slain by his master and scattered to pieces. But at the beginning of the spring of the year, the approach and reinvention of the same Osiris, that of a circuitous man, was wont to bring forth no small joy to them. And the son was called Osir. Sounds like Aesir, right? <laughs> Loki is with the Aesir. Uh, the son was called Osir, or a circuitor, on account of the ceremony of weeping for him. And by another name, he was called Bacchus, who in the words of Herodotus was Osiris. Very important, especially if you have, you know, jumped ahead watching this series to season two, the circuitor, <laughs> that element, you, you see Loki going through entire time loops where he jumps forward and ends up in the past and jumps backwards, and ends up forwards. He doesn't know which way he's going, you know, but that's getting ahead of us. Uh, like Tamas, though, Adonis is also slain by the boar's tusk of winter but eventually ransomed from Hades by the prayers of the goddess Aphrodite. And Adonis, by the way, Adonai is what the Old Testament calls Jehovah all the time. And Adonai, or Adonis is also an epithet of Bacchus, according to the mainstream. But always remember this. This is one thing that I hope you take away from our talks, is that the huge plurality of gods in mythological systems is mostly due to the misunderstanding the mainstream has that one god or goddess has many, many names in different cultures or letter swaps create different versions of the name for different dialects, different spellings, and that epithets are confused for individual extra gods. And then the last thing to say about Tamas here for now is that you know, an example of what I'm talking about, allegedly Zeus had a wife named Temis, which is basically Tamas. That's, in my opinion, where the name of the river Thames in England comes from, the river that goes through London. And Temis was a personification of justice, divine order, and law. So here we have that Libra symbolism again. All right, Gabe, I know you're ready to let her rip on, on all that. <laughs> uh well uh it's very interesting that um in the crowley book that i went ahead and looked up on the adjustment card it totally had all the agreement in the world uh because he brought up the battle between Nemesis and uh, 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 Themis, basically. Nemesis and Themis, which is uh, uh, the two sisters, the, two, uh, the day and the night, uh, the, the vi victory and uh, justice. I just noticed uh, that Temis is an anagram for Metis. Metis meaning wisdom right. was an, an epithet for Athena. And also Phanes, the figure also called Dionysus that burst forth from the Orphic egg, the, uh, the world egg, was called Metis as well. So, you know, when you start mixing up their so-called epithets and alternate names, you realize, ah, it's all the same guy. It's all the same guy here who's also a girl. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the, like, it's the metamorphosis of the sky, you know? going through its its own shape-shifting, uh, for sure. Uh, yeah, in, you know, also in, 
Yep. And in his chapter on the adjustment card, he brings forward the lambdoma, L-A-M-B-D-O-M-A, is part of the harmony he was expressing with the adjustment card. And the lambdoma is a old... uh, uh, Calculator, basically. It's the first uh, uh, rebus. Uh, the What am I thinking of? The Chinese calculator. And it's called the ABAX. And it's very fascinating to me because Lambdoma definitely echoes or rhymes with Lamentus, uh, which mm. is the name of this episode in particular. Uh, but I sent you a little copy from the book. Uh, or Lamed, the Hebrew version of the Lambda or L. Lamed, right. Lamentus. And Lamed is the yep. letter that's on the adjustment card. Yes, and this is a rite of passage that we're about to go through. A million rites of passage, including jumping through windows, all kinds of archways and toppling constructs the fall of civilization in general. Um, Tons of tower moments at the end. Yes. And the the ox goad or the lamed is correspondent also with the the hook. So there's the hook and the flail. Uh, One is a right angle and the other one is kind of a a curly cue. Um, But those are both listed in the Thoth description in the official manual by the book if as it were which by the way i don't really recommend this book very much i find this book to be walking in a million small circles and uh, not really getting anywhere uh, but there are some good nuggets in there it's just not really instructional or informative uh other than telling you what the si- the actual signs and glyphs uh really mean on each card uh, but one of the uh, locations that is inspired, that inspired the adjustment card in particular, uh, was said to be the um, uh, the Notre Dame Cathedral. And I think he was uh, implying that the harmonic resonance of the building, agri- uh, architectural resonance, is part of the imagery that is in the adjustment card. And that's very fascinating to me, looking back at what happened to the Notre Dame Cathedral and what ends up happening at the end of this uh, specific episode. I found that to be very apropos. Wow. Yeah, we'll we'll get back into that. I have a feeling, because I saw the images that you cobbled together and (laughs) sent to me, and I know there's a particular one that you love to bring up anytime it's appropriate. So (laughs) as we, now that we've laid some groundwork, you know, the... First thing that we get in this episode before we even see any shots is music. The Marvel logo starts to play or go up, but they're playing some music in the background and the lyrics were, you know, it had that sort of like mathematical perfect beat that just forces you to tap your foot, you know, like some kind of sorcery. (laughs) And the first lyrics were really interesting. So I went and looked up more about it. So the opening song is apparently called Demons 
by someone called Haley Kiyoko. And I looked into this Haley Kiyoko and yo, Kiyoko, she's the Disney version of the dark virgin. She's like a Miley Cyrus character from the age of five groomed to be the character she's going to be and taken from like, you know, a friendly, wholesome, like gay representative for teenagers to a full on, I've got demons in my head, <laughs> you know? So the, the lyrics to the song, they actually, in this episode, they skip the first line because the first line of the song is please forgive me. I've got demons in my head, but they skip that part. And they start you on the line, there's something in the water. I don't like the flavor. I don't like the taste. Searching for nirvana, something that'll take it all away from me. Don't bother me. My misery, it's holding me. Won't let me speak. Please forgive me. I've got demons in my head. Trying to eat me, trying to feed me lies till I'm dead. So... (laughs) That's dark. This uh, this gal, she's our, uh, around my age. I almost said our age, but I forget you're older than me. <laughs> so uh, she's 32 currently. Sometimes she says, sometimes it gets severe and sometimes it's really scary, she explains. Demons was inspired by a memo on her phone that she'd kept. And it's like in this article, it's implied like that she just found it on her phone and didn't know she had written it. And it said, please forgive me. I've got demons in my head. They're trying to eat me until I'm dead. I had that on my phone, she says, and was like, whoa, that's really dark and scary. I'm concerned for myself. So (laughs) this chick, Haley Kiyoko, if you look her up, all over the gay internet, she's being called lesbian Jesus. Lesbian Jesus. So that implies sacrifice if there's a Jesus involved. But I I feel like that ought to just... (laughs) I think we should just let that sort of ride, like leave that, you know, we get it. They're calling her lesbian Jesus. Make of that what you will. It's actually super disturbing. This is like the really disturbing aspect of Disney where, you know, they have these people on a assembly line from the age of a, from when they're a small child, all the way up to when they're corrupted, demon infested (laughs) monsters. Juan says, please forgive me. I've got a monkey lie in my head. We've, we can forgive that. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, Juan? Good to see you, man. Uh, but to continue looking at her, um, just because I, I kind of got into a morbid f- fascination. I'd never even heard of this chick. But here's some of her filmography. Uh, famous for Wizards of Waverly Place, which was when I was about an 18-year-old is when that was popular. And this was before Disney could like openly do gay stuff, but they had her as a, like a 13 year old, or I guess maybe she would have been like a 15 year old. I don't know exactly, but you know, had her as a, basically as a gay closeted gay character where they acted gay. Anyway, <laughs> the, wow. it's, it's a, it's a bummer, but when you look into how she got her start in her career, this is where it gets really fishy. Kyoko was discovered at the yeah. age of five when she went with her friend to a photo shoot The director asked her to step in front of the camera and she ended up in a national print ad for Knowledgeware. So I'm like, okay, who, what's Knowledgeware? Knowledgeware was a software company (laughs) headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia. So if you know now Atlanta, Georgia is the new Hollywood. 
Hollywood has all shifted there. All the Loki filming and all the Disney Marvel filming and lots of other shows are, it's the new Hollywood. But back when this gal was five, it wouldn't have been the new Hollywood yet. But we can see that the mafia or whatever had its, had its thing going already. Knowledge where is an interesting name. Um, <clears throat> you know, knowledge is gnosis or wisdom. Where is the same as the word ver as in variant, which we, we covered that off last episode pretty deeply, but that word where or ver is flow or river or change. So knowledge where is like the flow of knowledge or the changing of knowledge. Very bizarre. Mm-hmm. The uh, company's founder, I believe. Yeah. Or the guy who, yeah. Co-founded and run by this guy, Tarkaton. Tarkenton is credited with having coined, quote, a fool with a tool is a faster fool. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this guy and his, his co-founder or partner or whatever were eventually involved in legal shenanigans brought about by the SEC for engaging in fraudulent schemes to inflate their financial results to meet sales and earnings projections. So very obvious that this knowledge where company was some kind of like front money laundering, you know, mafia shit. And that's where this poor girl got discovered. So-called. Yeah. And now to you know, go back name to has, her, go ahead. her name is like almost okie dokie, you know, <laughs> it's like little miss go along, get along. Everything's good. Say yes a lot. <laughs> so in the, the book of Jeremiah, the brought the, uh, the allegedly the prophet, you know, Hiro Maya, <laughs> the sacred Maya, uh-huh. she, he or she says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me with the, fo- the fountain of living waters and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And in chapter 17, Whoa. verse three, it says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed. And they that depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord the fountain of living waters, you know, back to the lyrics that you hear, the very first lyrics of this song. That's the beginning of this episode. There's something in the water. I don't like the flavor. I don't like the taste. And chance again, I, I just, I keep seeing it. The Fornax constellation is at the foot of the Uradnus river in the, in the, in the heavens. And so it's literally in a bend in an oxbow of the river. Like the river does a really dramatic loop on itself. And inside of that loop is where the Fornox constellation is. And so these lyrics about the water tastes weird. And, and then the, even in the biblical uh, uh, aspect of, that you were uh, rapping about, about the water separating the waters. Uh, Again, I'm seeing alchemy. I'm seeing all these elements of alchemy that the Fornax constellation is known for. It's sometimes called the chemistry set, uh, the uh, alchemy. uh, Oh, I think it's like the uh, alchemy chemistry of this uh, constellation, I think is one of its names. It has a few different names, but it just keeps coming up and you just said it again. And it was in the painting that was correspondent with the uh, with that biblical verse as well. It's interesting because 
maybe you already said this, but the Fornax constellation is four pointed, like uh, you know, uh, a four sided polygon. It's not a parallelogram or a rhombus or anything, but it's uh, it's uh-huh. quite correspondent to a lot of shapes that you see in the mise en scene of this episode. So I'll point them out when yeah. I'm sure they'll be in some of the screenshots, but I'll be like, there's four next right there. <laughs> Cause it's in there. Yep. Yep. And one of the, one of the symbols that catches my eye the most is will be a rectangle or a cube or a, or monolith almost, but it has an archway access portal. Um, almost like a mouse, uh, like a mouse, uh, entry, you know, that, uh, just a standard arch, uh, so the combination of a square or a or a rhomboid with a, a, a horseshoe shaped uh, access point to me is screaming out alchemy, 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 fornex, which oh is the origin of the word fornication. The word fornication comes from fornex, and so in this uh, episode where Loki is testing his own uh, chemistry, he's seeing what his own shadow self is like, he's like, what well, you know, uh, which we'll get to, but they're testing each other's alchemy to see how they can get along, how they work together, alchemically speaking. So yeah, uh, it is, it's both, it is erotic, but it's also just, um, uh, interpersonal intelligence as well. It's, it's kind of walking a thin line there. Um thinking about the four of four next two and how Hermes or Mercury or Loki is the f- it, the number sacred is four. And how Nax is basically Nex, like Nexus, which is a word that means basically the same as Religare or Ligare. Actually, I'll save that because we'll talk about that again later. Nexus is our important to this show. Maybe not this episode specifically. But when we finally, here we are, finally, the opening shot where we actually see something on the screen. And we got ourselves a Mai Tai. We see the Mai Tai very clearly in the scene. They show it. Uh, they make sure that you know what it is, in my opinion. And, you know, if you know what, if you know your drinks. And the Mai Tai, again, just brings me right back to thinking of Maya, the illusion, and the mother of Buddha. And in this scene, the female Loki is creating a psychic illusion tying up C20. So the Mai, Maya, tie, tying her up, tied up in an illusion. <laughs> I mean, it's actually pretty sweet symbolism that they thought of that. Also, I, I found out the origin of Mai Tai is a Tahitian word that is that means good or excellent. And I don't know much about Tahiti, but that's basically, you know, isn't that what mighty means? You're good or excellent? You're mighty? Mai Tai? So there's an interesting linguistic sync. <laughs> also in this scene with the Mai Tais, Sylvie is wearing tie-dye. So <laughs> that's nice. <fine>. Very nice. <laughs> uh, and then there's a line about the health department. How many times the health department has shut this place down? You know, the shutdown makes me definitely think, okay, we're being, you know, signaled about the Libra moment, uh, the gates of winter the justice health department, bringing the justice, shutting it down, fall, the fall and death. And as the demons song keeps playing in the background, we get this scene where C20 is being 
is getting a brain freeze. And Sylvie says, you know what a brain freeze is, right? It's so cold that the roof of your mouth gets so cold that it freezes the synapse of your brain. And, you know, alongside it, that demon's song just keeps playing in the background. But this idea of your memories being literally frozen in place, to me, that's definitely another biofield reference. And in particular, it's interesting that the freezing of the the roof of the mouth is going on because it's about, you know, C20, it's on the tip of her tongue. She's almost revealing the information that Sylvie's trying to interrogate out of her, but she can't quite do it. And the throat chakra, you know, is about what you can or can't say, but also what you can or can't hear. And uh, then we have, you know, all of a sudden it's the night. So we've gone through the gates of <laughs> Libra and it's nighttime. And I, so, you know, C20 is kind of the afflicted one of the, you know, the afflicted virgins of the book of lamentations, I think. And then back in the, yeah, the real world, you have the temples being touched by Sylvie, her memories being frozen in place. Uh, and she says in the scene, she's probably just tired, tired, my tie, tie red. She wore red and nice. she's drinking my ties. Silly puns. Right. Waiting in there. Uh, and then we you see know, Sylvie's head. Oh, go ahead. Uh, well, uh, can you go back one more image? Or the, yeah, maybe even one more. Okay, this is a great one. Uh, I love that you mentioned the temple. That she's like communicating through the temple because the card that we're focusing on for this episode, the adjustment card was said to be inspired by uh, the French, uh, the temple of the French. And I was like temple of the French. That's Notre Dame. Uh, So it's very interesting that we're mentioning the temple here uh, while this, while she's attempting to, extract information from her uh almost uh uh inception style very much like the you know the inception concept of infiltrating uh somebody's internal privacy of their mind um uh but the two mai tai cups chants those are like the the bowls of the justice card right one Mai Tai cup is a little more drank. The other one is a little more full. So the mechanistics of the justice card, she's trying to tip the balance of the scales in her favor. She's trying to cheat the system by, you know, using these uh, mechanics of the mind. Uh, but also I think those two bowls of the just of the adjustment card, I think they represent the two Borealises of the fall season. If uh, we go uh, right past Bootes, we have the Corona Borealis. Remember, that's kind of a semicircle shape. It's the one that I think it's an apple with a bite taken out of it. Well, sure enough, it's about 90 degrees later, uh, one season later, and you're coming out of Corona Australis. And Corona Australis is basically the same thing again. It's like a, a, the other end of a cave. Uh, so I think of like going into the underworld and journeys through the cave. Um, 
is, I think it's correspondent with these two uh, borealises, these two coronas, the corona borealis and the corona australis. Uh, but I just think it's fascinating because she's infiltrating her underworld. She's infiltrating her mental sanctuary by trying to penetrate even the, into the into her heavens uh, by going uh, by sharing a common drink. They have a common shared space here. And so I just think it's fascinating that they're actually mapping out the the sky map uh, very, very uh, uh, accurately. But then, Chance, I want to point at the orb that are that it's decorating the sky because can you pull up an adjustment card or oh save it save it i've got them oh, okay. i've got that yeah <laughs> you're just getting ahead of my slideshow <laughs> okay, you know i right, saw that right. i definitely noticed that i wanted it's to point so, out too that you know i hadn't thought about fornax here but there is a scene later on where the lyra constellation appears in the form of someone playing a harp like instrument and Lyra nice. is, you know, right under Fornax, basically. Nice. Yeah. Cetus, the yeah. sea monsters kind of between them, but not completely. You know, they're definitely in the ballpark right. with each other. They're part of the same stellar tableau. Right. And the Fornax constellation is it's a tr it's a multi-layered trigger. I want to put this all on the map. It's both like fornication, right? So it's porn, porn, forn. Your cell oh, yeah, phone. A good example of the, the F and the P switching, which they do. F. Yep. So the fornication is on record on the on the phone. Now it's going to be fought over between a male and a woman. So it could be construed as like who you texting. You know, who have you been fornicating with? Who have you been fornicating with? But it also is a trigger for global warming. Uh, do you believe in global warming? Do you not believe in global warming? But it's also even a trigger for what well, I'll save the last one for the end. I'll keep a couple in my pocket, but okay. it, it is a, a, it's a multifaceted trigger that has many, many different uh, attachment points. And it just blows my mind that it's the MacGuffin of the film in, that unpacks a million different ways. The Tim pad you're talking about their little time travel iPhone. Yep. So this broken horn on the left side of her head is a very important, very important symbolically, definitely, because first of all, the horns represent the rays of the sun and the fact that one is broken. You know, the sun is weakening. We could say that much because we're in the fall. We're passing through the gates of judgment. Libra That's what this episode's about. And we're also halfway through the six episode arc of the first season. So kind of fits you know it's the balance point in a way in many ways on top of that it's the left side the feminine side that's broken and she's a you know to coin a, a word she's a masculinated female <laughs> loki is a feminized male so this is you know the horns represent abundance the rays of the sun and the recipe for broken abundance energy in relationships is a feminized male and a uh, overly masculinated female equals your abundance generation is, is borked at that point. You know, when the pole, when the two genders are in their healthy generative expression, then you have abundance. That's how it works. So now we see her going into the TVA and in the background here, it seems like every time they show this locker room, we see this 
26 in the middle of the shot. And here she is coming out next to the 26, you know, in that row. 26 is the, you know, the number most associated with the tetragrammaton because yad hey vav hey equals 26. But I'll say it a million times. <laughs> you know, I've said it before. I'll say it again. yad hey vav hey is not just Jehovah or Yahweh. It's also Eve. It's Eve or it's you. And that's because the Yod can transliterate to an I. The hey can become an E, the Vav a V, and the hey an E. So that's Eve. And lest we not forget that according to... Oh, damn. Dylan's in the chat. He'll tell me who, it's, who said this. He always... <laughs> He always has my back on this, but there's a, you know, it was said in by the ancient writers that there was the worship of a serpent named Eve, but it was Bacchus. That Bacchus was worshipped as a serpent named Eve, essentially. So the point being the the tetragrammaton Yadhe Vavhe is not just Jehovah, it's also Eve. You know, the mother is the father, all that. Oh, Tacitus. There it is. I knew it, my boy. <laughs> Thank you, Dylan. So after that, you know, the bell, (laughs) the bell dings at this point and the Minutemen go all hustling to their station and uh, she jumps them. And now I'm seeing how. Look at how he's holding the phone to his head. Or her holding her hands to people's head. Every time she does this now, I'm thinking of the lamentation Uh pose of Jeremiah. Interesting. Yes. It's also, um, that's also uh, the pose, artistically, this is conveying the idea of ennui. And ennui is a French term for boredom. Uh, but it's also like, you're, you're, you're trying to think of a solution. You're, you're, in, uh, you're stuck in musing to be in ennui. Uh, it's not, it is boredom. But it means you have time on your hands and you have time to think. So you're very thoughtful and pensive and you're you're not urgent. You have a sense about you like you're too cool to do anything because you're not urgent. So in some ways, ennui was kind of synonymous with being too cool for school. Uh, but uh, but it's also very commonly depicting sloth. This is a symbol for slothfulness or indolence. To be uh, to be leaning your head off to the side, uh, especially if you're reclining. Uh, so she's going to try to knock him out, but it doesn't work. It actually activates him, and she ha- she has a moment where she's like, "Oh shit, my magic doesn't work here." PK has a great comment here. Eve represents the physical body or the sexual components, and Adam the mind. And she's trying to te- you know she's the Eve character tempting the mind. She's putting her fingertips touching the temple <laughs> and right. yeah, it doesn't work They're They're basically asexual the, creatures. These uh, TVA foot soldiers. And, and you know what the month, the money's not working. The, the lights, the lights not doing what it used to do. And so the money is actually losing its value. That's an interesting metaphor there too, because it's green. So now we can get into talking about the justice card. This is what Gabe was referring to, or the adjustment card, yeah, as buddy. it's called in the Crowley Tarot. You see these orbs behind them and around in this shot. I think 
very much that these are the orbs that you see on the adjustment card and the fact that they return later in the episode pretty much proves it <laughs> in my opinion it's pretty much proven so oh, yeah. i think that she like that sylvie does represent lady judgment or temis or lady justice all the different names for her i'm going to read a little bit of what is said by <laughs> the great beast himself Crowley about this card because th this is crux to the whole weave of this episode. Okay. So reading here from Crowley's writing, he says this card in the old pack was called justice. This word has none but a purely human and therefore relative sense. So it is not to be considered as one of the facts of nature. Nature is not just, according to any theological or ethical idea, but nature is exact. This card represents the sign of Libra ruled by Venus. In it, Saturn is exalted, Kronos. The equilibrium of all things is hereby symbolized. It is the final adjustment in the formula of Tetragrammaton, when the daughter, redeemed by her marriage with the son, is thereby set up on the throne of the mother, Thus, finally, she awakens the Eld of the Allfather. And the greatest symbolism of all, however, the symbolism beyond all planetary and zodiacal considerations, this card is the feminine complement of the Fool. It's got the Lamed on it, the Hebrew letter Lamed, which signifies both teaching and learning. And Lamed, according to the Hebrew scholars, is an acronym of Lev. Mevin Da'at, which is a heart that understands wisdom. More To continue Crowley's statements about this, more than this, she is the complete formula of the dyad. The word all is the title of the book of the law, whose number is 31, the most secret of the numerical keys of that book. And as you see, when she's peeping on the intruders, which they actually reshow this shot. They reshow this. This is from the previous episode. But when she's they're at the uh, rocks cart grocery store or mega store, whatever she, the screen that she's watching them through is number 31. And you see the 31 very clearly. So, <laughs> you know, they went back and gave us a, a rehash of this shot. So we would see the 31 again. I feel like, right. you know, they're telling us something. And also, that uh, the XY axis grid system underneath that actually com comports to the uh, the lambdoma that Crowley uh, suggested was implicit to this card as well. It's a it's basically a grid system of calculation. It's a form of calculating using an XY diamond shape, which is the diamond shape of the card itself. In yeah, it's uh, it's what you would call a matrix. Yes, the, the lambdoma yes. is a is a mathematical matrix. Nice, and um, uh, can you you zoom into the uh, left shoulder of the character on the card? You're going to see a a flaw, uh, what looks like a break or a mistake. Do you see that? off of her shoulder on her left side is like a imperfect uh, image 
or some sort of, uh, I don't, I don't know. Uh, looks like a unintended shape there. You see it that that, that, that the diamond shape. My left or her her left on like her, the, her left this side. Yep, there's just something about yeah, and the fact that that dark green uh, diamond. To me, it just looks like a break or, yeah, like a flaw or a, a imperfection, which reminds me of her horns. The mm. fact that she has her horns on one side are just nice and even, and then on one side it's broken off. And right here, there's like some strange imperfection hiding out on the one corner. Yeah, and you see in the scales, you have the alpha and the omega, and then the sword yes. in between is the eye. And as Dylan pointed out in the chat, great commentary, Dylan. Don't forget that Jesus admits to being Yao, which is I-A-O or Iota Alpha Omega. I am the Alpha and Omega. And Yao is on the coins of Abraxas or Nephis, who are serpents or serpentine. So there's your serpent named Eve. And that is uh, that that specific sword that this card is holding is the exact same sword in the same deck that is the Ace of Swords. Mm. And so as we are going into the fall right now, uh, the swords the uh, become the element, the wind, the aspect of wind. The Ace of Swords is the infamous Ace of Spades, which is representative of, and in many senses, it's like death. You know, usually the ace cards are something good, but the ace of spades or the ace of swords yep. can rem- could be a death uh, divination as well. Now, did, it's interesting did, that you bring up the uh, lambdoma, which is like a matrix, mathematical matrix. And if you look in the, the patterning behind the card, you do see that kind of like perfect grid system with just a slight blemish that you pointed out that I find really interesting that there's a, there's an imbalance there towards the right side or the alpha side, probably intentional, but Crowley says about this character, who the complete formula of the dyad, the feminine component of the fool that the most secret of secrets is that she represents manifestation which may always be canceled out by equili- equilibration of opposites. That's what he says. Manifestation, which may always be canceled out by equilibration of opposites. So the major theme of this episode, and maybe the whole show at large, is how Loki and Sylvie, the anima and animus, the yin and the yang, masculine and feminine, being together in equilibrium threatens to end the sacred timeline, which is all of manifest reality, but also kind of a controlled illusion, essentially. (laughs) From the Book of Thoth, again, Crowley says, balance against each other its exact opposite, for the marriage of these is the annihilation of illusion. The woman satisfied, (laughs) from the cloak of this vivid wantonness of her dancing wings, issue her hands, They hold the hilt of the phallic sword of the magician. She holds the blade between her thighs. This again is a hieroglyph of love is the law, love under will. Every form of energy must be directed, must be applied with integrity to the full satisfaction of its destiny. So 
we'll keep this in mind because essentially what we're getting from Crowley is that the alchemical, the purpose or the, you know, the satisfaction of the alchemical marriage is the canceling out of manifestation, (laughs) which is being considered illusion, the annihilation of illusion, destruction of Maya. And that's the question I want us to be asking as we go through this is, (laughs) does the alchemical, does bringing together the masculine and feminine principles in equilibrium destroy everything or does it create everything? Because to me that, you know, this sounds like total, uh, lie. (laughs) It just sounds like Crowley's lying. I don't know what else to put it. Like, it's just not how it works in anything that I've ever observed. That's not true. You know, so going uh, forward, she's, Oh, go ahead. Can can you go back to the one, the one picture before? Yeah. So, uh, Right there is her rig uh, for uh, the episode where she opened up all the different portals. Yeah. That rig is the shape of the Aura Altair constellation. Again, another another ding for Aura Altair. The fact that it's off to this kiltered shape, it, it's going to keep coming up. It comes up a million other times in other episodes going forward. But I want to I want to uh, give our Altera a, a shout out when I when the, it comes up, and also the golden uh, doorway that they keep walking in and out of is totally the shape of this uh, adjustment card. You know the do- the the big, big monolithic gold uh, shape is the shape of the uh, card, and it's almost the same color too. It's a little more warm yellow. But it is totally, um, and this this diamond that the adjustment card is representing is called the Great Diamond Asterism, and it is in Virgo. It's perfectly in Virgo, and it's uh, corners. It has four corners. One is uh, Arcturus, one is Spica, one is the nose of Leo, and then the other one is... Uh, some other obscure star, but it it does. It makes a nice diamond shape that is almost a perfect fit for this diamond here on this card. But also it has like the right angle of all right angles, Coma Berenices. The Coma Berenices constellation, which is Samson's hair when he gets his hair cut off. But this Coma Berenices is the right angle of all right angles. And the diamond is basically from Arcturus down to Spica to the cat's nose, if you believe that. And then up here to uh, somewhere around Canis Venetici. Somewhere up here, there's the top of the... Of the uh, the great diamond asterism. So yeah, we are definitely going into the fall coming out of the last of the summer sky. I like the comments from MS in the chat that maybe we're talking about the destruction of illusion mentally. And that does kind of work mentally. You can cancel out persistent, you know, illusory or limiting thoughts with their opposite. Definitely can. Yes. And everything being mental and the hermetic principle of that. I could, I could, I can jive with that. 
And I think people miss the point and <laughs> yeah, the logic fan for mystics always talk about things in the abstract for a lot of them. Actuality or existence is the enemy. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I think we're up against in the world right now is the factions that see reality itself as somehow not real and to be rebelled against or destroyed or jailbreak the construct as it were all of that. But going back to the, the plot progressing forward in the plot, she finds out that magic doesn't, does not work at the TVA, her left hand. She's looking at her left hand. Her left horn is broken. Her left side symbolically is broken Her feminine side, but she can take the magic phallic stick. <laughs> 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 and she does her her um stick karate beats the dudes up uh <laughs> i really like this guy's face the extras really put in you know they went the extra mile with their <laughs> anguish and their expressions as they're getting He's looking a little he looks a little like homie romey if homie romey was playing the role <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking it was like uh, Kali or something. You know, he's being destroyed oh, after call. all. Yeah, and, and uh, they make the okay, worst so noise when they uh, die. They're all uh, yeah. That, Loki follows her through the uh, the time portal. You know, this to me is reminiscent of how in the mythology of Tamas, Ishtar slash Inanna and Tamas follow each other into the underworld as in one goes in to retrieve the other, but then the other comes out when they go in and they're in this constant cycle, you know, the summer and the winter, essentially. Yes. It kind of, it makes me think of the, uh, that Corona Borealis in the Corona Australis. The fact that I'm convinced that there are literally two entryways going through the fall and they go in one and come out the other. But another thing about that scene is there it's the locker room. They're going into the locker room. And the last time we were in this location was when uh, B-15 came in the room and took the size, the, the swords, the knives away from Loki. Uh, Owen Wilson is like, uh, he's like, oh, here you go, just in case. And he's like, all right. And then B-15 comes walking. She's like, uh-uh, I don't think so. She snatches the knives away. She puts them in her locker instead. Well, I didn't realize until this scene to look back at that scene and think about the fact that they're, for one, they're doing co-ed lockers. B-15 should not be in the same locker room. They slipped that past our radar, right? And then here in this at this aspect, he's chasing his own animus through a locker room. And so there's something really psychologically profound about that. Uh, the, he has committed. He's now committed to pursue his own animus. And the first thing that it's, he's brought through is into the locker room where he got bullied before. Last time somebody tried to give him some, some, some manpower between two men and some, some woman comes up and snatches the manpower out, out of, from his hands. Like the, the moment of disempowerment happened in the locker room. And so here he is re 
retracing his own trauma, his own steps. And what does he do? He looks back, he sees that locker. He's like, I'm going to steal that shit. And he goes and he gets his swords back. So there is kind of a remanning up that goes on right here, but it's not explicit. It's really very subtly uh, uh, going on behind the scenes. You got to be looking to see it. Yeah. Thank you for, that's a better explanation of, (laughs) I never really thought of it as locker room politics, but it definitely was, you know, B-15 is another masculine female in this series. I mean, she's beefier than all the dudes that she's standing around in that scene where she takes his, (laughs) she castrates him symbolically. Dude, the word B-15 is basically beef. B and then (laughs) F. Beef. (laughs) Beef. She's a beefy teen. <laughs> Locker room teenagers. So I wanted to talk about the Ishtar or Inanna, also called Geshtinana, which to me, Geshtinana, that's basically got Ganesh in the name. You know, it's there. Uh, Ganesh, Janus, the doors of the year, particularly that fits in my opinion symbolically because the Tamas and Inanna marriage date was the marker of the end of the old year, the beginning of the new, which would be like roughly the end of March and the beginning of April for us. But that would have been where the year ended and began back then, allegedly. And you see the horns that she's got here, Ishtar, uh, goddess of love, war and fertility. That makes her identical to, Aphrodite, who has all those same uh, qualities. And here's another verse from the book of Lamentations. He hath cut off in his fierce anger all the horn of Israel. He hath drawn back his right hand from before the enemy, and he burned against Jacob like a flaming fire, which devoureth round about Especially that, you know, the flaming fire devoureth roundabout. That's very much what's going to be going on later in this episode. But cut off the horn of Israel. We have a cut off horn here on Sophie shown very clearly throughout this episode. And here's a perfect example where you wouldn't even know, you know, if you didn't have the context of horn referring to the corn, cornucopia, then you would probably be confused reading this Bible verse, like most Bible verses would be if you didn't have the symbolism. Uh, And, you know, remember the strength card. There's something we got to keep in mind, you know, in all of this, of the switch between the strength card and the justice card that Crowley did, which I still don't fully understand why that switch was done. Honestly, it's a weird thing you know but that's yeah. the, the strength card of the lust card for Crowley is the you know the Virgo character the queen of heaven taming the lion and here's Ishtar standing on the lion well you know I got I got something on that uh for one that you know you read you read some of it in his in his from his own words about how justice does not exi- exist in nature um and I'm inclined to kind of agree with him that uh I think another thing that I interpret from the removal of justice from his deck is that um, 
the 11th Aristotelian virtue is not, was not originally justice. Originally, the uh, final virtue was righteous indignation. And that is to say that Aristotle, for many years, for many cultures, before somebody got their hands on it, was telling full-grown adults, sometimes you got to get fucking righteously pissed off. Sometimes that's the right fucking answer. And somewhere between Aristotle and us, they're like, nah, you can't be telling people it's okay to get pissed off. (laughs) You just can't tell people that it's okay to get pissed. Uh, So what they did was they removed righteous indignation and they put justice in its place. And the thing is, justice is, is just an industry. It's just, I call it a salt lick shooting gallery. You know, it's not, uh, it's art. It's just art. It's really not scientific whatsoever. Um, so I'm kind of with Crowley on pulling justice out of the, you know, that's a dangerous illusion. It's a, you know, it's a false hope. Uh, it's a, it's, it's man's pride. It's, it's drama. It's drama. Uh, and it's pharmakia. It's also pharmakia, believing that you can put your sins or your transgressions into uh, a surrogate persona. And the surrogate persona will go into the gladiator for you and come back. And whatever happens is the will of the gods. You know, mm. it's, it's just su- superstition and, uh, and drama. So I'm, I'm kind of with him. But adjustment Maybe we'd be in a better thing. position to consider that, that position more in, along the concept of karma. Yeah, you because know, karma Part, does yep. seem to exist in nature. Yes, and there is the wheel of fortune card is right next to it. The the wheel comes into play uh, very proximally. Yeah, uh, but I and and I think of the adjustment card uh, as and as the uh, the Overton window, and what people will uh, cons- will adjust their sense of what's right and what's wrong in this world. And isn't it fascinating that Crowley, the most wicked man alive, he came as a living example to move our sense of what is evil so far along that now you and I can make butt jokes and sodomizing jokes because Aleister Crowley cleared cleared the socially acceptable uh, public arena. So now we can make butt jokes and talk about weird how uh, psychosexual sports are. And we owe Crowley for that because Crowley uh, just threw the gauge of what's socially acceptable so far. And every once in a while, we have these characters like Marquis de Sade. Marquis de Sade comes on the scene and now like the comics in the, the comics who make the mail, like, you know, the newspaper that uh, depicts politicians doing things. After Marquis de Sade, the comic strips became like insanely lewd. And like everybody's walking around with priapus boners in the newspaper. And so what is socially acceptable gets kind of thrown and adjusted uh, periodically. And that's what I think about now. When I see the adjustment card, I think Overton window, this is the discernment of the Overton window uh, and what's considered socially acceptable. Hmm. Oh, and this lambdoma. Uh, metric, this matrix measurement, this XY axis thing, at the very top of it is balanced an infinity symbol, a sideways analema. And sure enough, he changed that card to be card number eight. 
There's an alarm doma is a is a uh uh limniscato, a turn sideways eight, and it's at the top of that metrics. Hmm. And Did sure you enough, catch that the limniscate shows up late in this episode as well? Huh. The I moment when it. they're finally crossing the threshold into like, you know, the hopeless side of the gates of judgment. Then that exact moment, they, yeah, they crossed the analemma. <laughs> you know that that symbol shows up. Well, we'll we'll look at that later in the stream when we get to that point. It definitely is there. Oh uh, yeah, fire, fire, fire! <laughs> so Loki, uh, he gets his knives. You know, me and Jen were thinking about like what it means to dual wield. You know, to have two weapon fighting. There's uh-huh. a type of Roman gladiator that was called the Demacariot. Demacaris, Demacaris, something like that. The name is basically the Greek word, or you know, according to the mainstream etymology, anyway. Demacari, which is D dual or two, and Ma, which is justice, essentially. You know, it's another name for the Athena or justice character is Ma, and then Kari which is hands, but also, you know, takes us into the realm of Charon, Charon, the, the fairy man, just some fun little etymology, Demicarius, Loki is a Demicarius. Um, and we see in the hallway, all of the people who've been killed by variants, <laughs> you know, never forget, never forget when this was coming out was when people were getting all kinds of pumped up about like, the next variant is going to kill grandma. The next variant is going to kill everybody. Variants, variants. And here's this show about variants. And they're you know, killing government officials, apparently. Uh, <laughs> now, they have this fight scene where Loki and Sylvie are, are trying to figure each other out. They're, they're in a bit of a scuffle. There's very much this idea of stalemate going on throughout this episode. and. I think that's one of the ways to interpret what Crowley was talking about with the two forces in equilibrium that ends manifestation because you have this anima animus. They're in a type of equilibrium or the scales are balanced. One can't beat the other and neither one can really proceed in their path either while they're in this stalemate. Another thing that Jennifer caught though is you see this clock. There's three clocks on this mural, but there's only one that they show repeatedly. In a lot of the shots, you can only see this one that I have circled. And then in the end credits, there's a very prominent projector that's shown. Hollow projector 35. And on this clock is the time 1135. So I was like, you know what? Let's just see. Is there any reason why we should be thinking about 35? Turns out that there is a great reason to think about the number 35 in the biblical gematria, the Hebrew 35 is Gimel Bet Lamed GBL, which essentially means to turn to plate as in like twist together or combine to be bound or limit as in to set a boundary. It can also refer to mountains or hills. Or high places, essentially. So first of all, 1135. That's the 11. And then 3 plus 5 is 8. So there's your justice card and strength card. You know, 11 to 8 being adjusted. <laughs> 8 to 11. Eight, 11 to 8. That's all in the mix. 
And I'm going to just move forward, but we're going to keep keep GBL in mind here. You have, well, also, if you do the BV switch, you got gavel out of GBL. There's that gavel, as in the judge's hammer. And this is the TVA we're talking about, and they're the, the time gods, the time judges. But here, since we're talking about boundaries with 35, great time to bring up Terminus or Termes, a.k.a. Hermes, uh, a psychopomp here, or a boundary marker, essentially. In Etruscan religion, Termes or Terms is the equivalent of the Roman Mercury and the Greek Hermes, both gods of trade, and he's the messenger god between people and the gods. You know, same exact deal same attributes caduceus the winged helmet the winged sandals all of that jazz we've also got the archaic herm which are these posts that have the god hermes head on them and also often a phallus like think priapus you've also got the what the they, you know the scholars call terminus which is another god a god of boundaries but it's like they just completely ignore, conceal, or miss the point entirely that, hey, wait, Terminus. But there's also Hermes on these exact same posts marking Terminus points, boundaries. So is, is it really a different god named Terminus? Or is it terms of the Etruscans is Hermes is the god of boundaries? And the god of boundaries and containers, wait, that's Kronos, I thought. That's a Saturn thing. So here it all goes, you know, collapsing into itself and becoming one thing. Even a lot of these Herm statues are a cross. You know, they have like the cross symbolism going on. There's your savior on a cross all over the place. So anyway, getting into the um, back to the word GBL or the 35. It occurred slightly more than 200 times in the Old Testament it may denote, sometimes it denotes the banks of a stream, as in a river, as it does in the book of Numbers. It can be the outer walls of a temple, the subsidiary territory of a city, but usually is described as the boundaries of a people. And possibly, though, the most interesting derivative of this word GBL, Gebel, is the word Bible. And that's straight from the mainstream scholarly Hebrew analysis. And what is a Bible or Biblos? It's a law book, which is the boundaries of behavior. And there's your justice card again, you know, with the the law. (laughs) Also, if you do the C to B switch, your CBL is Kabbalah, you know, it's all there. It's a lot going on here. Man, that is really good. Uh, it definitely makes me think of Angel Gabriel, uh, and oh, Angel Gabriel, yeah. who's yep. a messenger yep. of the gods. Yeah, totally, uh, and was very likely responsible for you know giving the name of of the man, the Most High, Javastafari. <laughs> no, uh, but. Also, um, there's a sacred text, an alchemical text that has a, a very similar name. It's like a, 
I'll, I'll see if I can uh, dig it up here in a second, but it's basically a alchemical uh, book with a name that is basically Jabiri, Jabir. Uh, and, and it uh, has many ciphers. It's all, it's very numerically oriented. And I often, I've often joked with uh, Juan. I actually told him, I said, if Jesus was a homunculus, then this Jabiri book is the book that the, that the recipe came out of. You know, Dylan also might be right about GBL, JPL. Because G's and J's can switch. Both can make the just sound. P's and B's also switch. GPL, JPL. Jet, 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 yeah. Parsons Laboratory. Yeah, who worked with Crowley. Okay. That's okay. in there. Uh, all right. Before we go too far from that, uh, in the last episode, in the scene where they're in the library, they're going. So here, we're still in Libra. We're still in the library. We're still in the the, the domain of the books in the old written stories. They're going back uh, to uh, access all of those uh, disasters throughout history. And uh, I learned this by reading, uh, uh, researching the film in some of the director's comments on the director's own decisions on the motif of the film. Buddy, she says that they, uh, that they chose the music in the library to fit exactly the music that they were playing in the movie seven. Do you remember seven? Which is also about them tracking down a killer, right? And related to like the seven deadly sins. I remember the movie. I don't, think i ever saw it all the way through but i see a lot of thematic similarities and then that whole episode the previous episode was all about well one of the major themes was laying the groundwork about how mobius that character represents the seven exactly which yes which is totally going to unpack a million different ways now uh because his personality type being a strong seven um but i went back and i watched the full scene that it overlaps like a one-to-one correspondence to them doing their, uh, their research in the library. And it's, um, uh, Freeman, uh, oh, F- Freeman. What's his, his first name? Morgan. Uh, Morgan, Morgan Freeman, Freeman. Thank you. He's doing the research and he pulls Dante's Inferno which I've done some research on that in the nine levels of the Inferno with the nine levels of the Enneagram. Um, But he's also pulling Canterbury's Tale. And in Canterbury's Tale, he specifically, I like peeped his notes and I snatched a screenshot of his notes. He's uh, specifically drawing on the, the part of the story called the Parson's Tale. And the Parsons tale from Canterbury's tale, it's like one of the many chapters, is the part where they list the seven deadly sins and the seven remedial virtues that will cure the seven deadly sins. And so uh, I just wanted to mention that. Uh, it's also the JPL. The Parsons tale is also the terminus or the, the terminal point of the Canterbury Tales is the final tale in the frame story. That's it. That's what's up. <laughs> yeah just totally uh, we had to study we had to study that uh that shit i was an english major so i did a lot of brit lit courses nice 
Nice, dude. That's awesome. So uh, it's so fascinating to me because, Chance, um, here we are studying Loki going down really obscure associations. I mean, it doesn't get much more thin branch of speculative association to get to the end of the scene with Morgan Freeman and find out that it's all about the seven deadly sins again. And just last week, you pulled out The Economist magazine. And on the cover of The Economist, Economist magazine was The Seven Deadly Sins, giving the rough, uh, rough map, the rough map to hell. Uh, very, very fast. Yeah, the roadmap so, to hell. Oh, yeah. That was in episode one of this, wasn't it? Right, right. Yeah. So all of this is just blowing my mind because the Enneagram is my map to both through the heavenly realms and through the infernal, you know, obstacles of existence. So, yeah, very fun. Very fun to find uh, the seven deadly sins popping off yet again. I affirm that. I got to mention this comment from Nick again in the chat about GBL. This totally this one got right past me. This is why I would love the chat. You guys, thank you for the weaves. This is some, cause this feels really relevant. GBL is a drug that when you take 1.2 milliliters of it, you get high for an hour and then your body processes it and turns it into GHB and you get high again. I remember hearing about that one. That's like a, a rave drug, right? And he says 1.2 milliliters is the boundary. And if you take more than that, you get what I've termed possessed high. It's scary to watch. <laughs> and get this, the GBL as a drug is called gamma booty rolectone. <laughs> gamma booty. <laughs> gamma booty. We did a lot about Loki being a gamma at the beginning of the series and, you know, changing. Okay. So we'll continue on, though. I wanted to point out with this shot how the, you know, these are the Gemini twins, right? And we talked about GBL could also mean like a, a hill or a high place or a mountain. The Gemini constellation to the Sumerians, Babylonians, Akkadians, the, the Mesopotamian cultures was twin mountains, actually. And mountains are the boundaries between people. So we see there a clear connection to the Hermes Gemini character figure and the idea of boundaries going back really far. And uh, the whole scene of them fighting and being in their stalemate is interrupted by Renslayer showing up and she's like, I'm just going to kill you both. I don't care if one of you kills the other. I'm getting rid of you both either way. Loki quick thinking activates the tempad. And they fall through the trap door again. So here's another the fall moment, which is the theme of this episode, constantly in the fall. And oh, look, I, we get a picture of the uh, of the timekeepers on the side yeah. there, dude. I'm loving the one with the gigantic mustache. He's looking a little like Nietzsche. Kind of got the <laughs> walrus mustache going over there. <laughs> I can't wait. I think that's next episode that we get to see the timekeepers. So. Man, yeah. we'll have fun with that. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Haven't rewatched those episodes till I get to them to analyze them for this. It's been a lot of fun. 
I'm really grateful for the people that are on this ride with us too. The people that like, you know, they see it, oh, it's about comics or whatever, and they don't tune in, but they normally would watch my streams. They're missing out. Like, this is the fun stuff, man. So they fall through the trap door, and now as they're scrambling to fight for the Tim Pand, they realize that it's out of juice. You're out of juice. <laughs> Battery's dead. Whoa, what's juice or use? It's from the Sanskrit you or ju to join. So use is Latin. That's a law or a system of law. So, you know, <laughs> I can't help it. I've, I'm seeing the lawgiver, law justice card pop up here again, right? With use. And not to mention, we've, we talked about nexus events last you know previous episode or two ago how nexus events are what the tva is trying to stop or whatnot and i it's a really good example of how the l the uh, the l and the r can swap but also the n can swap with r's so in latin ligare is to bind relegare is to rebind or to retie to bind or to hold fast that's where the word religion comes from but ligare is like legislation you know it's the that lig or leg that's of the idea of legislation l i g is l e x lex lig c switches with g but c can also become the x sound you see all these interchanges going on so lex and lig are <laughs> and they're all right there. You know, you see this. And then Lex and Rex, that's who's giving the laws, is the king. Rex is king. But Nex, as in Nexus or Nectare, is another word. Nectare in Latin meaning to hold fast, to tie, to bind. So when we see the word Nexus, we should be thinking law. We should be thinking religare, religion. You know, in all of this, ligare and religare, Showing you how the law is the religion. And regardless of if you think you've separated church and state, if you believe that there's a mystical thing called a government that has laws <laughs> that you, you know, Santa Claus is watching you to see if you've been naughty or nice, all of that, you are in a religion. And that's okay. You know, it's okay. If we want to have a, a binding contract for society of what thou shalt and thou shalt not do. All good. You know, that's fine. But don't <laughs> be under any illusions about what it is. It's uh it's one hundred percent a religion. So this you know, this just tickles me a lot. And keep in mind Nex and Rex and Lex all basically referring to the same thing. That you have N and R and L, very interchangeable. Particularly the R and the N are what swap, not the N and the L. But the L can swap to an R, so it all gets <laughs> it all gets very flexible, <laughs> flexible. Now this one's gonna Gabe, you're really gonna like this one. All right, we're looking at first first statue is Lady Justice blindfolded, holding the balance and a sword. But where do you find this? Hong Kong. This is in Hong Kong. <laughs> this is worldwide, nice. baby. In the middle, you got. Tish or Tike, which is also known as Fortuna. That's Lady Luck. Then on the right, you have her again 
Fortuna, Lady Luck. But do you see the blindfold that she's got there? That's because this is all the same being. It's all the same character. They divide her up and say it's different, you know, different gods, different goddesses. But like I said at the beginning, it's actually all the same one that has different epithets and names. So when we're talking about justice, T-I-C-E, justis, it's just, just tike, just tish. That's her. It's t- Lady Luck, Lady Fortune. And nice. interestingly enough, in terms of the twin symbolism, Lady Justice often appears as a pair with another goddess named Prudentia. Prudentia means forethought. It's, it's Prometheus and Epimetheus, the female version of Prometheus and Epimetheus, Tish and right. Prudentia. That's interesting. I think... Uh, what is Prometheus is forethought, right? Yeah. And Epimetheus yep, yep. is afterthought? Yeah. And justice totally. comes after the fact, you know, it's an afterthought. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's really great. I love that. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's kind of like another, uh, yet another Janus where they're, you know, looking in opposite directions, covering, uh, covering each other's bases. You could kind of say, you know, you watch my six, I'll watch yours. Yes. Thank you. Yep. Y- you get it. It's they there. An- yeah. The anode cathode, they almost, uh, they imply each other. That's kind of it. It's like so many times, like when you hear the, uh, when you hear something that is 20 degrees, you should also be thinking of uh, something that is 160 degrees to make it a complete 180. Or you should be thinking of something that is 340 degrees. So it can be a 360 complete. Uh and I love that. That's really cool. That's really cool that you got that. Justice is just tiche. Just tiche. That's that's beautiful. Do you see the orbs in here too? Yes. On both of these images, those yes, orbs yes. from the adjustment card. Yeah. The um one thing about Fortuna is she is said to be uh if you're not gonna go by the rules of the city then you're going to need her good graces to go uh, try your luck in the wilderness. And so there's, there's like a dividing line, a separating of the wheat from the chaff, so to say, or. uh, You're getting ahead of us again, separating the wheat and the chaff. (laughs) You see this right here. You see what she's holding. Uh That in my opinion is a, is a fan, but it's also, it's also the oar of a boat. We'll explain why it's both later, but that's a fan, which is used in the process of separating the wheat from the chaff, a fan. And also, here's the horn. She's holding the horn of plenty, the cornucopia, the single horn. Yes. And so is this Fortuna. I believe that that's what that's supposed to be. Nice. So these horns are my read. Of course, they are the uh, in the springtime is when the the spring they blow the shofar. It's the beginning of the year, but also this uh, this horn is on the other side of the zodiac 
uh, over uh, with Arcturus. Arcturus is sometimes called the Great Horn, and it is a shofar in its own right, but not so much of the springtime solar abundance uh, coming up into fulfillment. It's actually marking more of a lunar initiation. Uh, the Great Horn uh, is a markation of the lunar new year. Uh, over in Bootes. So while the sun is coming up in the spring uh, equinox, the moon is going to fulfill itself across the sky on the other side of the zodiac under the great horn that is the Arcturus constellation. And that begins the lunar calendar. Uh, so yeah, I, I totally just basically see uh, both of the equinoxes marked by the horn in particular makes sense there's two horns on the head right and then the other hand is the staff which would be more of the sol- uh the solstices so the horn would be the equinox staff would be the solstice and you remember you remember lesbian jesus <laughs> from the beginning of the stream <laughs> here's dk or dyke <laughs> Uh, another goddess of justice in the spirit of moral moral order and fair judgment. But Hey, I'm pretty sure we're not, I don't think we're looking at DK. I think we're looking at TK. Taish, Tish, TK. However you pronounce that T's and D's switch yet. Somehow the mainstream scholars and mythologists just miss that. And they're like, no, this DK is different than TK. They're not the same. It's the same. Uh-huh. It's the same. Just holding the scales. Give me a break. Come on. So here's a great example. Another God made up by the misunderstanding of letter swaps. There you go. But hey, what can you do? We're, we're onto it. And you guys listening are onto it. You'll know what you see. You won't be confused by the mess of zillions of gods and goddesses. You'll realize, oh, it's all one system. It's all the same thing. Very helpful. Very, very helpful. But I can't help but wonder if, like, you know, is that where we get the lesbian being called a dyke? I don't know, because aren't they all oftentimes riled up in term, in, in least ostensibly by the injustices of men towards women? So they go that way. That's that's my take on it. Yeah. That's what I'm reading into this. Yeah. Not to mention, hey, isn't that Astaroth, Astarte? I don't know. You know, you see the the lettering behind her. Oh, yeah, totally. Yep. So back to the juice, <laughs> which, by the way, <laughs> Mick in the chat says that the juice is another name of that GHB, GBL drug juice. That's funny. Oh, damn. Yeah. I These are the sinks that just uh, they just manifest when you look at this stuff. It's like. The the winks are constant. I've got one coming up that really threw me for a loop that I wasn't expecting to stumble into. But back to the book of Lamentations, remember this verse. The Lord hath trodden underfoot all my mighty men in the midst of me. He hath called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord hath trodden the virgin, the daughter of Judah, as in a winepress. Well, Right before Libra in Virgo season, the grapes are harvested in Virgo season and crushed in Libra. And that makes the wine. 
But when did the grapes ripen? During the Leo season, when the sun is in its fury. And that's why the wine, symbol of Bacchus, creates that divine madness of like the Bacchian rites. They're drinking the wine that contains the fury of the Leo season. So this whole thing about like crushing the wine or crushing, uh, crushing underfoot, trodden the virgin underfoot. We're talking about that point in Libra where the grapes that were harvested, they're untouched grapes, they're virgin grapes for extra virgin olive oil, <laughs> you know, harvested in that season. Mm-hmm. Now, the next shot, the two Lokis get fighting again. They're in their stalemate. And wow. he throws her into a barrel. Just wow. like a barrel just that like, you crush the grapes in. Just like <laughs> Diogenes. <laughs> Not to mention it's all this purple color grading. Purple being a color associated with the grapes. This is the wine nice. press, though. She gets thrown at the wine yeah, press. But, and tell us what so your awesome. reference to Diogenes, what are you alluding to there? Uh, yeah, Diogenes, he lives in a in a wine barrel with a bunch of dogs. Uh, live, he's uh, he's the cynic. He's the philosopher cynic. And he's said to go around naked, surrounded by the dogs, living in this wine barrel, and he's got a lantern. He's the original hermit card. He's basically the original hermit card. Uh, the wine barrel that he lives in is the Crator constellation. The Crator constellation is a wine cup uh, because, as Chance was elucidating, this is the season for, you know, cheers. Um, But the dogs of uh, Diogenes hanging out around his barrel, that's Canis Venetici right there next to the Crator constellation. So all Mm. of the ingredients of these um, of these philosophers, they've been deified as well. Into the constellations. Oh, yeah. The crater is the wine vessel. Vinitishi, kind of reminiscent of the word Vinter, which is a winemaker. Isn't it? Isn't it? Great call. (laughs) And a Vin, you know, switch the V to a B. Vin is a bin, you know, that you might keep them. It might be keeping it in a bin. Could be. Could all be there. Language is one big interconnected. Symbolic story time. Super fun. And Canis, Canis Vinitisi is an anagram for Vatican science. Hey. And, uh, it's a loose anagram. It's not perfect. I had to be, I had to play, be playful with the word science. But we know that they are masters of the VAT. The, the VAT being, you know, uh, the, the spirits uh, that they need for their, for their, for their rituals. Uh, so yeah, very uh, very interesting. The Vatican science, uh, and oh, and they were the um, uh, uh, they can't made forget all the, the greatest venter of all is Jesus turning water into wine. That's it. That's totally their you know their magic, totally. And Noah, who taught the people the art of making wine, because Noah is Bacchus, same as the uh. Cox Cox in the Mexican indigenous religion, or I don't know, like I can't remember off the top of my head, like Patalatl or some crazy word, but they had a version of Noah. He's the flood hero, gets off the boat, teaches his people winemaking. One of his sons sees him naked. 
everything, the whole bit. Like it's exactly wow. the same. Wow. Fucking Cox Cox. <laughs> <laughs> so uh Sophie, they're fighting, right? And now Loki can use his magic. So he's teleporting around, he's doing illusions, and she says, You're fully a magician then. Huh? And so why don't we just look at the magician or the magus card? This is one of the magi card of the three that are in the Thoth tarot. But I feel like he keeps doing this pose where he's holding the daggers down like that. And it really reminds me of the pose of the magus card in this deck. Even with the rapier that it's got. Here's the caduceus. This is evidently, you know, definitely mercury. And according to the color associations that the Thoth deck explains in its, you know, guidebook, the color related to this and Mercury would be purple. And, you know, this is also the first time we really see Loki do much magic. Wanted to also point out that the alternate name of the magician is the juggler in the tarot. Doing tricks. Next, their fighting is interrupted by this meteor, miniature meteor that pierces the ceiling and comes through. So again, from the Book of Lamentations, verse 3, he hath cut off, I think this is chapter 2, or book 2, verse 3, Lamentations. He hath cut off in his fierce anger all the horn of Israel. He hath drawn back his right hand from before the enemy, and he burned against Jacob like a flaming fire which devoureth roundabout so now we got the fall you know fire falling from above the sun going down the firefall right and we leave this shot of them you know in their stalemate and here we got you know the title lamentus one so to me that reads book of lamentations book one (laughs) go read that it's not a long read honestly And then as we zoom up, we see the year is 2077, and here's a big moon hanging in the sky. Although they kind of flip it and they say that that's a planet, but what they're on is a moon. But hey, apples and oranges is the same thing. You know, if it's hanging in the sky above you, it's the moon. Uh, This also makes me think of Cyberpunk 2077. One of these days, Gabe... You got to look at the Cyberpunk 2077 video games tarot cards. It's like really? the major arcana made into the story of transhumanism. And it's intense. I covered it long ago. I remember. But, yeah. I remember some of your work on that a while back. Uh, vaguely. I didn't know that it was specifically 2077 on that deck. That's the year that the game takes place in. Yeah. Cyberpunk 2077. I've been revisiting that game as they just put out a big 2.0 update. Totally added a bunch of stuff, changed a bunch of stuff. It's an interesting one, man. I actually kind of think that they're the, I think they're good guys, but it's hard. It's hardcore. I think the guy, the most of the intent behind that game is actually to like, as properly illustrate the abject hell of transhumanism as possible even giving you everything that they can that would be considered flashy or cool, but juxtaposed with the truly horrific connotations of such an artificial, you know, human, human fall. And they do a good Uh job of that. I actually like it a lot. 
and it is just chock like full of warm- cold stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, so this image <clears throat> for me brought forward the star card from the Thoth deck majorly, even though uh, it's called the star card, it is dominated by a, a massive moon. Uh, and the star card is correspondent to Aquarius. But what is really Oh, even got the purple of, color grading to it, too. It's the same color. It's also exaggerated moon. But it also, this is, if it's in Aquarius, it's going to be at the foot of the Eurydnus River. And this is going to be where all the runoff uh, at the bottom of the river, this will be like the delta of the Eurydnus. But again, with that, uh, the Fornax constellation is uh, going to be on my mind uh, throughout the rest of these scenes. Uh, because it is like a conflagration that's happening is these worlds are colliding and they're the essence of the characters are, are uh, coming to terms with each other. Yes. Nice. Just pot, let's put it right in there. Isn't that so correspondent? And so hundred percent. I mean, the colors are exact. It's exact. the letter. Hey, is the letter on the star card for the thoughts tarot. And yes. that letter in Hebrew is. Behold, here it is. Something disturbing. Yeah, buddy. And we, you know, the shot pans yes. up and it's like, behold, be disturbed. You know, like it's everything about the yep. star card. Yes. So there are quite a few weaves. Like right away when I see the this moon and it brings in the star card in my mind, a thousand million things come to mind all at once. <laughs> uh, but uh, one of the most important ones is going to be um, the Fornax constellation, but also uh, everybody remembers the China, the China weather balloons. This is the China weather balloon. Her arms outstretched across are in the exact shape of the weather balloon that had everybody in a tizzy. And that weather balloon traced the exact course of the eclipse of the great American eclipse. And then they popped it off the off the coast of uh, South Carolina. It went exactly along the course of the Great American Eclipse with the seven Salem's and all that. So this card has been charged already with veneration and fear and speculation and what it's a woozy, it's a woozy, it's a fagazi, it's fairy dust. What is it? Uh, and sure enough, here in this film, they're bringing out its echoes. It's uh, it's uh, its emanations are coming out in the film again. And it has to do with the sky is falling, global warming, a big, uh, the end of all things. Uh, but I want to point out the cup. She's holding the cup, the Krator constellation. She's got one up above and one down below. Um, and then one more thing, she's going to be representing the swan, the Cygnus constellation. Notice her hair makes a sine wave. The Cygnus of the sine wave is the wave of her hair. She's going to be representing Pegasus, uh, which is the uh, the vehicle of the hero that gives that lets him escape. Um, but she's also the augur, the reader of auguries. February second with uh, Groundhog's Day is kind of intrinsic to her location. But then I'm seeing, you know, what an augur looks like, right? The it's a spiraling it's a screw shape. It's like a drill. It's thing. a drill. And look at the shape of her hair. 
Her hair is literally the shape of an auger or a drill or an Archimedes. Oh, well, and that, that sh- what do they call that, it, you know, where it's like twining around itself? That, uh, yeah. What is the, like braiding in a sense, twisting together a plate yes. or P L A I T, plating? That is uh-huh. one of the meanings uh-huh. of the GBL in Hebrew, the 35, Gibil. It's that twisting that's twisting around her. Uh, wow. So the helixing, if you will. One thing that I noticed in this in this episode. Nice, nice, yeah. Well, one thing about this episode, it's just, I just decide no, I don't know if it'll come up or mean anything, but we're actually not seeing any of um, Mobius. It's like they can only pay so many actors to be in so many episodes. So they're like, okay, well, we're not <laughs> gonna pay Mobius for this episode. So while he uh, I just noticed an absence it. of him. That's probably yeah, why. Yeah, a budget. He's at, yeah. I'm just I'm mentioning that he is absent, but I think sometimes there's something alchemical about the character who's absent. I I don't want to speculate too much, but the the lack of Mobius. Uh, I don't know. I'm just making a note of it. But then I want to mention the drinks. Uh, in the beginning, the two girls had the two tiki two tiki drinks, right? Well, my here, this star card had. She has two cups, one in each hand. One is pouring out. Well, they're both pouring out, really. But again, with the two drinks or the two cups, uh, both with the Mai Tais, but then here in a second, we're going to have the uh, the champagne, again, with two cups. I had to really think about the number 77. You know, it seems like that's got significance. Uh-huh. And I'm not sure about this weave, not entirely sure, but I did come across on shout out to Corey Daniel, the Phoenix Enigma. He was claiming that the gematria value of ichthys, which is the word, the fish word, and also that six spoked wheel, you know, the Jesus later became the Jesus fish. So it's a, Bacchus symbol, essentially Buddha symbol that the gematria value of that is 77, like the powers of notation of those letters in Greek. (laughs) 77 is two thirds of seven, 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 two thirds is 0.666. Wait. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you can go check out the Phoenix Enigma, Corey Daniel, phoenixenigma.com. There's an article about 77, you know, it's all over the map. There's tons of stuff. Particularly interesting is Flight 77 that allegedly hit the Pentagon. Um, tons of stuff, though. The I've heard right. it said that 77 in the dilemma, the... So, so-called satanic cult system that Crowley set up that 77 had to do with like sorcery and sex magic. I don't know. <laughs> I can't, I'm not making any claims. I don't really have receipts. It was too much for me, honestly. Yeah. To try to get into well, the, I, all the possible meanings that revolve around 77, yeah. but there's a lot of, I, I, of I'll note is Jacob Bohm say says that 77 is the total number of divine revelation thanks to the word made flesh. I don't know what that exactly is supposed to mean. There's a lot to it, though. 
Well, uh, a couple of things that stick out for me is uh, Lady Frida Harris, the artist who made the this Thoth deck uh, in particular. She was born in 1877. She said that the deck would take about 100 years before people could understand what it meant. And I have come to understand its meaning best through the Star Wars trilogies. Uh, and that came out in 1977. Ah, And so I just find it, I find it very fascinating that she has that sacred holiday or that sacred birthday. And it was a hundred years after her birthday that the Star Wars started to unpack uh, and reveal some of the meaning in the Thoth deck to me. Well, also Christ is the 77th generation from Adam, according to the biblical genealogy. So lots of stuff with 77. We'll have to keep that number in mind. I'm sure we haven't seen the last of it. But again, you were talking about Mobius being missing. He's the seven of the Enneagram. So we go forward from here and we're seeing that this moon is about to crash into the world and destroy it, the world that they're on. I find that interesting because this character, Sylvie, it's basically the word silver. And silver is the moon. She is set to destroy the TVA. That's her entire mission. And moonlight is the decaying light, where a sun is like the generative light. She's basically the moon to Loki's sun. You get that anima animus thing going on. Now, here's, here's the one that I found that totally threw me for a loop when I stumbled upon this accidentally. Okay, do you see this? In this scene, she tries to, they go into another building to hide from the meteors. She tries to enchant Loki by putting her hands on the back of his neck and their foreheads almost touch. And there's a long, awkward, romantic pause. Thank you, Dylan. Ick, this is not 77. Okay. I knew that article I was looking at was a little too schizo and I couldn't on the fly go add it all up. Thank you. Okay. We'll leave the Ick, this in 77. Not a thing. Anyway. If you see the way that the silhouettes of their heads and the space between them is shaped, I immediately was seeing a heart shape, you know, the heart symbol. So I went to go search for like a clip art heart symbol to just overlay on the top of this. And I came across an interesting little piece of information that I think I've seen before, but lost. And it just revealed itself to me again that according to the mainstream, The heart symbol, as we know it, originates in 5th to 6th century BC Egypt as it represented the heart-shaped fruit of the plant Silphium. Silphium? That sounds like Sylvie. (laughs) Sylphie? Sylvie? It's basically the same word. And this Silphium was used as a contraceptive and an aphrodisiac. So you have that dual use of opposite functions, it's mercurial, you know? And to me, that's like symbolic of Loki and Sylvie. Are they going to kill each other or love each other, right? That's what you're thinking in this moment. That's the moment that's happening right here, and this heart shape comes up. Uh, And recall, the last two episodes had faint to somewhat strong references to aphrodisiacs. You know, this is the third time that we're getting an aphrodisiac reference. Allegedly, yes. this <laughs> allegedly this uh, silphium 
was used to the point of being made extinct. They used it all up, but that they got the heart symbol from the logos that were on shops that dealt in pharmacia in that fifth to sixth century BC era of Egypt. And that's where we get the modern heart shape. Wow. Yeah. So is, there you have it. The heart shape totally is related to pharmacia, oddly enough. Dude, nice dig, Chance. I love this. It just um, fell in my lap. You know, it just, I couldn't miss it. Blew my yeah. mind, though. So, so okay. So this this is this fits in with um, the February of Aquarius because of uh, Valentine's Day. Uh, so that is a nice fit for the uh, for the star card uh, weave, um, but I love this uh, this aspect of uh, having to use drugs or pharmacia to supplement the erotic experience, like because she tried her magic on the guard at the TVA in the hallway and it didn't work, and now she's trying her magic even on her own self, her own mirror to. Uh, uh, divine twin and it's not even working on her own self and so there's like kind of a a subliminal desperation around getting the mojo to work and again i gotta say um i know that they they seem to be trying to make this an actual romantic spark between the two lokis but i think they're i think they're not doing a good job of it but i think they're not doing a good job on purpose i think they're missing the mark on trying to uh spark up some sort of romance between them and it just isn't happening uh cinematically it's but it's not like they're really trying so it's hard to really pinpoint is it the director is it the film are they are they do they want it to actually have any romance because it just keeps falling short of what usually would hit the heart feels as a, as a, you know, as a consumer of the art, it's just missing the mark for me. So that's interesting that you're picking up on, you know, supplemental uh, chemicals that would induce the sense of Eros. Yeah. The, I feel like the bringing of them fully together, they're also giving us the idea that that would end everything. So you have to keep the poles apart. That's how a battery works. You have to keep the, positive side and the negative right. side separate for the charge to jump the gap. You know, <laughs> there's something about that, like duality would collapse, which reality itself is a duality that's in the mix. I wanted to zoom in on this coin of Magus of Cyrene. And one thing that you'll get, <laughs> I think a lot of the so-called ancient Kings and Queens and rulers are actually astro theology and deities that are, you know, various names and epithets. And we're being told, oh, well, it's on a coin. So that must have been like the king putting this face on the coin or the queen putting their face on the coin. I'm sus about all that. I'm very sus about all of supposed history. But pointing out that the age of this coin is supposedly from 300-ish to 75 BC. And it has the sylphium on it. I would challenge the audience to help me figure out, is that really what this is? You know, I think that there's a bigger mystery with this so-called sylphium plant. I don't know that that's what that actually he's is. Got the, 
He's got it was the supposed to have been already like he, extinct by this point or not used commercially anymore. Yeah. Do you see how he has a horn coming out behind his ear? At first glance, it looks like his hair is combed backwards, but if you and the laurel wreath uh, on his stretch head. You, yep, if you stretch the imagination, that thing that's covering the top half of his ear could be construed as a ram's horn pointing forward. And that is well, a sign put that of that on like Alexander the Great and other such yeah. so-called ancient super kings. Yep. And one thing I love about that on coins is it proves how how long they have been uh, uh, putting things in plain sight where you, th- you presume that it means one thing. Common sense would tell you it means one thing. But if you have initiated uh, eyes, you can see that it means actually the exact opposite of what everybody else was thinking. But yeah, that's a horn of initiation on that ear right there. Good stuff, man. So this one Whoa. shot, this one shot tells us a lot. Actually, this little scene they have in the room, there's, it's just full of it, man. You know, and, and as if wow. to confirm my previous weave about the heart shape between their heads, she asks him after they break away, her magic isn't working because he wants, she wants to enchant him to get the, the Tim pad MacGuffin from him. And she's like, well, where is it? Where'd you hide it or something? And he says, in my heart. (laughs) So immediately we get the heart and she threatens to cut his heart out to get the Tim pad, Uh, you know, the broken heart symbolism. But looky here, looky here what's behind. See what's behind them there? Those are fans. Wow. Just hiding in the the background. So as described by, by Virgil, where he calls it the Mystica Vanus Yaki, Yaki being Bacchus. This is, in my professional opinion, this is the mystic fan of Bacchus. And going back, if we jump back a few bazillion slides, see what Fortuna Tish has. That's also a fan. So the fan is, let's jump back to here. There's so many things I want to say about this. I'm going to actually, well, first the phantom is the priesthood, as in the phantom that's in the temple, profane is the uninitiated, right? Then on the left here is phanes. <laughs> phanes was called metis, which is wisdom, an anagram for temis or themis. Phanes was Phanes is born of Kronos or time where Kronos creates the egg that has the serpent around it. And Phanes is born out of it. Same exact story as Mithras. Phanes was called Dionysus. Dionysus is Bacchus. This is Noah. This is Jesus. This is the firstborn of the first cause. This is a hermaphroditic being. You see the breasts and the, the man junk. In the Orphic hymns, he's even referred to as Lord Priapos. That's Priapus, which is the Herm, Herm statue, giant dong. All of that is in here. There's just so many things. <laughs> we need to talk more about Phanes someday. Maybe even like just do our own stream about it. Remember the Mobius? There's the Zodiac, which is the Mobius yep. around him. 
But in terms of fan symbolism, it's even got, it's even got the Krator, the cup at the bottom is the Krator constellation. Good call. Yeah, which is often depicted. Yeah, the Krator cup is often depicted with a uh, Terpsichore, the dancing muse. Uh, that's something I'm kind of picking up on is some of these articles around the Zodiac are symbols of the muse in particular. But uh, one thing I'm I'm dialed in on is the and cup. Do you see the GBL, the braiding around him of the serpent? Right. Like and and it's also Lucifer. You know, this is Lucifer as well. The, yeah. the beautiful first creation. Yes, totally. Yeah, man, that's really, that's really, oh, and uh, the, another thing about the fan, the, uh, cause we're in the Fornax. Dylan says Phano was the name of the planet Saturn prior to Kronos. Gotta keep that stuff in mind. I need to have that memorized. Oh, the name of the planets before wow. they got their names attributed that we have now. That makes me think of, that makes me think of piano right there. Keeping time on the piano. Um, but the, so this this little bunker that they've dove into to have to have this lovers quarrel, the bunker that they dive into is being showered with meteors before they before they break into this place and have this little spat. That bunker is the shape of the Fornax constellation. Um, one of its many articulations is basically just a a, a rectangle with a, a nondescript entryway on the side of it. And so it's very apropos that you're pointing out that there's a fan inside of that, well, whatever, it's like a a pump station of some sort, you know, like a utility station. It's very nondescript, but they are, they're working out their differences. Uh, It's a conflagration outside the sky. The fan is used as a symbolically to purify the grains in the threshing process. You know, the the wind purifies in the, this is Virgo season. Yes, yes. And so I would say, so since they're in the Fornax right now, that fan is going to very likely be the Phoenix. So let's see. There's the Fornax on the Uradnus River. And so just off a few degrees is the Phoenix which will be the fanning of the wind. But then also there's a... Yeah, fan, fan, fin, phoenix. Yeah, totally. The sculptor constellation is going to be important here as they are about to sit down at the table. Uh, But yeah, I just wanted to put all this on the the map. uh, That It's interesting that there's a wind element, a fan element right next to the the Fornax where they're working out... differences fan tamas fan (laughs) of the another thing about the fornax constellation this will be the location where they're producing the 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 dye the uh the purple and the blue the royal blue or the royal purple dye is manufactured out of the fornax constellation so that explains the color purple on the star card, as well as the color purple of this planet when they go outside. It's very because purple. of the, the tear. The tear purple is making everything uh, take on that that hue. 
And I wanted to show how oh, there's the fan is such an important symbol that is way overlooked, but okay. Check out the left here. We have arrows, which yeah. is the savior. This is the, this is the spark of attraction between God and goddess or mom and dad, male and female. That's why it's the savior because the spark of attraction between the two poles is what generates manifest reality, generates life causes existence to continue to exist and Eros holding or offering a fan and a mirror to a lady. And what's going on in the scene with the fans? They are, you know, let's back up two slides. Mirror, mirror, fan, mirror, fan. <laughs> so it's for sure there. It's 100% there. Now, we said that the fan is used to symbolically, energetically, and literally purify the grains as the separation from the wheat from the chaff. Fan blows away the chaff. And it's also involved in the, this winnowing fan is involved in the Dionysian rites and the Eleusinian mysteries. It's pretty much just written off by most of the scholars, right? They're like, oh, they, they're just borrowing farming implements that they're familiar with and making them into sacred objects. No, dude, the farming implements are sacred objects. <laughs> You're missing the point. But as you see here, this is the infant Dionysus in what's called a, let's see, what does that say in Greek? Lichnon. So the Lichnon is the basket that the infant saviors ride in, like your Moses riding down the river in the basket. There's lots of examples of the savior in the basket. There's Osiris in the co coffin. You know, that's the arc as well. And it's the microcosmic arc in, in a sense. But that's the, the whole earth holding the souls of the deceased for the next cycle of regeneration. The other thing to remember about. OK, so what I'm trying to point out here is how the winnowing fan is also the cradle that or the basket that the saviors ride in. It's the same symbol. And that's also the oar of a boat. So <laughs> the Lichnon cradle is the ark, is the fan, all kind of wrapped up in one symbol. If that makes sense, it's a multi-dimensional symbol. And then as we move forward to this next slide on the subject of fans and Venus, I just thought right. you would get a kick out of this Gorgonia flabellum <laughs> a Venus Whoa. sea fan. Why I bring up wow. Venus is just because the word fan or is Venus, which is basically Venus. That's the word in Latin, Venus. Uh, Dylan made that connection in one of his spirit world books. Shout out Dylan. It's great synchronicities nice. to uh, point out, syncretism to point out. But <laughs> this on the left is called the Heim, Heindal Tarot. I feel like uh -huh. this might need to be your next project once you've put away the Crowley Tarot. The Heindal Tarot is wild, dude. And this is the Justice yeah. card. I kind of got it cut off in this slide, but this is the Justice card with the 30, which is the numerical equivalent of the Lamed. And there's the X rune. Can't remember what that rune's called. I need to look up on my rune symbolism. But as you can see, the peacock tail. And these feathers, that's another fan symbol. See what I mean? 
buddy. Dude, you got me. Uh, you got me peaked. I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm totally interested in this Heimdall tarot. There's something going on here. It's totally calling me in. Yeah, it's like Heimdall. H a i n d l. Heimdall. I it's love very, it. It's quite I obscure. It. I first heard of it from mm-hmm. Lindsay Sharman of Rogue Ways uses it. It's. It's like the Omni Tarot. It's like all the symbolism everywhere pulled into one tarot. Nice. One one thing I love to point out, you know, we use the word fan, like I'm a fan of that person. Well, a fan of the person will be the person who's literally standing at ready, ready to fan them. You know, if you're if you uh, admire a person then you want to please them, you want to be the source of their pleasure. And so any chance to come along and be their fan uh, is kind of intrinsic to the to the the role. Uh, so yeah, I love that. That's really great. I'm just going to pull up what Dylan shared in our chat here. Cause it looks great. Gorgon symbolism and fan symbolism. I feel like it's an unexplored Avenue for you, Gabe, who is so interested in the Gorgons. Yeah. Yeah. So this you know, is Venus. She's uh she has a bunch of Venus has a bunch of little baby angels surrounding her. And so the angels uh, intrinsically will be cooling her off uh, sometimes just by their wings, but sometimes, you know, they, with the fan as well. Oh, damn. Look at that. Wow. Yeah. So the fan is also wow. like the shell that Venus is riding in, which remember she's emerging out of the sea on that shell. So it's the basket. It's the ark that's carrying her. She's born in it. So, you know, the baby in the basket, the shell, the fan, you see, it's yeah. all the same thing. Yeah, this, this is a great example to illustrate the point, Dylan. So thank you for that. Yeah, man. That is a good one. Some love old how, ass uh, Etruscan. Yeah. Cool. Oh, and here's more. Oh, look at that. Look at that one. So that one's got the uh, those loop-de-loops that make a basically the hood of a cobra has that symbol of the double loops that uh, make a horseshoe shape. That is the symbol of the North node uh, of the lunar standstill cycle. So there's a North node. And then if you turn it upside down, it's a South node. So uh, remember Libra yeah. is ruled by Venus. Venus is basically the Medusa. Cause what happens when you go through the gates of Libra? You get turned to stone. Everything freezes. Winter's here. Day, yeah. Death and stasis. Totally. So there's this idea of equilibrium, uh, the equilibrium of death, <laughs> the equilibrium of stasis that's going on once you get into winter. And then the other Venus ruled sign, Taurus. Once you've crossed into Taurus, you're now unfreezing. You're in the equilibrium of, of flow. So lots to think about there. Better keep this party rolling, though. Right. Yeah, this is power rich. Power rich. (laughs) This show is rich for analysis, man. Now, I liked this shot because if you can make it out here, these two craters are a lot like, first of all, scale symbolism, because you have this balancing post between the two, you know, dishes of the scales. Or you could even look at these scales as an inverted pair of mountains, you know, like 
instead of a mountain coming up out of the ground, it's the con it's concave instead of convex, right? Right. Nice. You know, I was I was seeing it as uh the two bowls of the justice card again. Yeah. Uh and also clear obviously the collision of two worlds, the two Lokis. But again, I just have to point out the Krator constellation is the cup. So again, with the cup, the whole they started with the cup, with the uh, the scenes of the two tea cups, and here we are with two cups yet again. <laughs> so now they're getting to know each other as they're walking through this apocalyptic desolation, and he says to her he wants to know her name so he says to her i'm sorry but i'm not calling some faded photocopy of me loki and i find that interesting just to point out that the the generations of incarnations of the savior the firstborn of the first cause metis fanes you know noah bacchus all the different incarnations adam to noah to pythagoras to christ etc they're basically akin to copies of each other in a repeating cycle so the photocopy of Loki, that makes a lot of sense to say it that way. And the variant idea now takes on a very different twist when we consider that is what's going on with all of our mythology and our gods and goddesses. Now, she says her name Sylvie right before he gets her name, Sylvie. We finally get the reveal. She's Sylvie. She's walking too fast for him to keep up. He complains about it. She's quick, Sylvie. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> in the English, totally. in the old English, quick actually means living. So when you say quick silver, you're saying living silver. In the Latin, it's argentum vivum. So in reference to Sylvie's new name and the argentum vivum. Let's read a couple passages that uh, I bridged them a bit, but these come from July's End, Dylan's third book, Spirit World, July's End. Revelation chapter two or Revelation book two, verse 17. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat and I will give him a white stone and on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So. She's given herself a new name that no one knows except her. And now she's given him the secret name. Also, manna is falling from heaven, as it's being described in Revelation here, while there's stones falling all around them, little white streaks, white stones falling around them. Now, to quote Dylan in a slightly abridged passage from July's End, he says, the manna corresponds to the dewdrop hieroglyph. That is depicted with the stork. Silver is divine wisdom. Gold is divine love. Thus, the stone that Jesus gives to those who overcome pertains to divine wisdom. The manna, the dewdrops from heaven, the Christos, the argentum vivum, the cerebro, cerebrospinal fluid. Mercury is the bread from God. Using the phonetic Kabbalah, gamos, is marriage in Greek. Hieros gamos is the holy marriage or sacred marriage between a high priestess representing Inanna and a young man who represents Demuzid, who is Tammuz, a shepherd during the Duku ceremony before the new moon at the autumnal equinox. 
Is Christ not the good shepherd? Remember Demuzi, the shepherd, Tamas, the shepherd. Christ is the good shepherd. Krishna is a shepherd, etc. Is Inanna not representative to the aging sun at the end of summer? Ancient Sumer? <laughs> Ancient Sumeria? Is this not allegorical for a royal marriage or an alchemical marriage? There's so much more in that book. Guys, if you haven't been reading uh, Spirit World, you should catch up. Uh, Sylvanus, Roman tutelary deity of woods and uncultivated lands. That is also in the mix with Sylvie. We, I'm leaving that on the table for future weaves, though, to get into the, the woods and uncultivated lands of Sylvanus. And now she decides to ask him, what makes a Loki a Loki? And I thought we might bring up again that Loki is a four in the Enneagram. <laughs> and the four is the number sacred to Hermes. The individualist is a four because fours maintain their identity by seeing themselves as fundamentally different from others. So he's threatened when he sees the mirror to himself, you know. it's <laughs> He wants to be unique. Fours feel that they are unlike other human beings and consequently that no one can understand them or love them adequately. They often see themselves as uniquely talented, possessing special, one-of-a-kind gifts, but also uniquely disadvantaged or flawed. More than any other type, fours are acutely aware of and focused on their personal differences and deficiencies. It sounds like, you know, the special boy, <laughs> secret totally. king gamma type are probably fours that are <laughs> caught up in their shadow. You know, right. they're moody, self-absorbed, yeah, dramatic, all of that. Yeah. But so, the uh, funny so thing the, is, yep. is that like, if they... If they could just convert from their shadow to the light side of the the four behavior, they could be very useful <laughs> to the world. You know, they yes. could be mercurial yes. agents that can do a lot of good. Yeah, man. That's the, the yeah, funny they, thing uh, about mercury. It, it brings good. It brings good to where there's bad, and it brings bad to where there's good. So you got to watch out. Nice. So, so the number four personality has a shadow of envy. Uh, and the infernal name of envy is Leviathan. And uh, Leviathan is the name of Thomas Hobbes' book that he wrote about the social contract. And uh, long story short, everybody in the world has a copy of Leviathan where um, all, uh, it's, a, it's a big uh, uh, colossus on the sky. And uh, he's basically the sovereign. He's a king. But his body is made up of a bunch of humans. But everybody in the public has a copy of this book with the back of everybody's head, making up the corpus Leviathan, looking up to the sovereign. But the sovereign, he has the only copy in the world where on his cover of the book, he sees the front of everybody's head as though they're looking at him. So he's the special boy. He's the individual. He has the only copy where all of the population is looking up to him as the monster that calls all the shots. You know, mm -hmm. everybody out there in the public, they get a copy of the book that gets the back of everybody's head. So it's so fascinating, the ego trip that is intrinsically designed into the book, the Leviathan, that Thomas Hobbes wrote for future kings to come. So, yeah, all of that is kind of part of my weave around the number four individual with a shadow of envy Leviathan. Another thing to say about 
speaking of a Leviathan, which is a big serpent, right? Sylvie, that root sylve, is basically salve, which means save in Latin. We know the brazen serpent is the symbol of salvation. The serpent raised on the pole, Jesus on the cross. The Going back to the Herm that we showed, a lot of the Herm statues, the Terminus statues, were the Savior on top of the post that had a cross T-shape. That's all there. Now, there's a funny thing that happens. I found it funny that he's trying to figure out what she's up to. And I tried to like put these screenshots together to be like a comic book. <laughs> he's complaining how, oh, you just want to destroy the TVA. You're going to create the ultimate power vacuum and then just walk away, huh? And then they get up to this this house and she decides to brute force kick open the door. And then she gets <laughs> hit by a power vacuum. <laughs> Basically, this looked like a, a power vacuum, you know, that she gets blasted with, like a reverse vacuum, because it shoots some kind of air or force out. So it's like a reverse vacuum. But I, I Dude, feel like that was yes. on purpose joke, power vacuum. You know, I think you're, dude, you know what, you're really, uh, you're hitting on a new a nuance, but it's it's so correspondent to what I was thinking about. This particular, because then he goes and he tries his luck to try to talk this lady down. He gets blasted as well, the same exact way. But yep, and he does it nice. by instead, yes. you know, diplomacy and guile. He tries to impersonate a man that's in a photograph with her in the room, who is said to be named Patrice Pa Thrice, <laughs> Triple Father. <laughs> nice. And she, he tries to sweet talk her and she immediately blasts him with the power vacuum because her, yep. her old Patrice would never have said nothing that nice to her before. <laughs> In 30 years. <laughs> so And 30 so is Lamed. Lamed nice. is the number on the adjustment card. Or the, hot fire, hot fire. <laughs> so, uh, the letter so the on aspect the adjustment of, card. Yes. So the aspect of falling backwards is become very, very symbolically meaningful. It's, it, it carries so much more for me. It really packs a punch. Because of the nature of the Thoth deck fool card, he's falling backwards. You can see his heels. You can see the bottom of his feet because he's falling back. Where the Rider weight fool card is going to fall forward off of a cliff. And th that difference is... is uh, has been accentuated by the fact that we have all of these falling uh, died suddenly events where so many people have been part of a ritual where now they fall backwards all of the sudden. And one in particular was during the football game with the bills versus the Bengals when uh, uh, DeMar Hamlin gets taken out and he falls backwards and he's he's number three he's totally the fool card and on this the glyph of the fool card is this triangle it's a triangle with inside of a triangle it's the uh, pedophile triangle is the glyph of the fool card so it's so apropos that they were just talking about a vacuum which would have pulled her in we think but then it turns out it goes the opposite direction and it generates the exact type of fall that is unique to the Thoth deck fool card falling back on the ass. Because uh, that's how Thanos falls. Whenever Thanos wants to disappear, he's always falling backwards into his disappearance. 
even Loki does a, a backwards fall at the very beginning. And so all of these, you know, it's kind of like a the trap door fall. too. in the bottom below. It's kind of like that. Even that totally. But the thing that I'm finding is that it's, uh, we, we are learning in this generation not to trust the trust fall. <laughs> It's going to be Look hard before lane. you leap. Do not jump in. Ask first. That's <laughs> it. That's totally it. Uh, it's interesting too, that she calls them devils because these are Fanny's characters, Luciferic characters who have a fall and then become the devil in the winter half of the year, which is where we're going. We're going into the winter half of the year. So they are devils in a sense, or they're about to be. And on top of that, this is said to be the year 2077. And since we're taking a Crowleyan lens through this episode, Liber 77 was the book of the devil. According to Crowleyites, they call that the book of the devil. Oddly enough, probably a lot more that we could mine out of that, but uh, not someone that's ever taken the time to thoroughly read Crowley for better or worse, whatever it may be. So forgive any misunderstandings I have about him. If you know, you're a Crowley apologist, <laughs> the, the part of me wants to think maybe there's something else to it because of how widely vilified he is. One of those characters so widely vilified that maybe it's like an opposite day thing, but sometimes uh, an asshole is just an asshole too. <laughs> it's hard to know. Good point. Good point. You but know, even thing, that's the thing, thing, too. Another thing about this series, though, that was really clearly uh -huh. like explicitly stated in the previous episode and is a very Mercury idea is that uh, no one evil is really evil and no one good is really good. And I'm sure that applies to Crowley. I'm sure that there are some as Michael Tesserian used to say, you know, you can give him a few gold stars and he would point out some things about the philosophy that he would approve of. Give the thumbs up to. Right, right. You know, one thing that uh, I, that I find fascinating about Crowley, I, I stay so ambivalent. I say uh, more ambivalent than I ever thought I would, really. Um, but one thing that I find very fascinating is that he was chased out of the Americas by the Espionage Act. And the Espionage Act has a fascinating history. It's basically been used time and time again. They just they just dust it off whenever they need to go to war. And so they'll use the Espionage Act in this really old gimmick where they uh, generate a bunch of um, uh, uh, people who are uh, uh, away from their home, um, immigrants, an immigration. They'll generate an immigration with political turmoil in the people who become immigrants. They are then put in a pressurized situation where they basically become recruited for the, uh, to go off to war. And that happened during the uh, Mexican revolution. And then it happened again during the world wars. Um, and I just find it fascinating because Crowley was chased out of the United States using the espionage act in some of those lines from the act that was uh, lit under his ass to get him to leave. Some of those are still the bedrock of the Patriot act today. And so in the strangest ways, the, the mechanics of, the poli of politics from his day are going to be drummed up again right now. Uh, and it's just fascinating that the Espionage Act is still around 
uh, and it chased him out and it might be chasing some of us when they come, when they come swing in the ax for the big reset. I'm good. I'll be good. We got a lot of guns <laughs> here in this country. I think we're all right. Most of us. <laughs> now, while we're looking at this lady, she tells them about the ark. The ark is where everybody went. She's wanting, you know, the locusts are wanting to know where is everybody? They went to the evacuation vessel explicitly called the Ark. And I felt I couldn't help but feel that this whole episode is a big moment of vindication, uh, affirmation of what I quote from Godfrey Higgins in Anacalypsis all the time, that the crescent moon symbol is secretly the Ark symbol. And here you have an image of the Akkadian moon god, Sin, Sin, like the fall and Sin, holding an omega and holding a crescent in the other hand. He's got horns and he's on a boat. He's on an ark. The other name for the Sumerian moon god, Sin, is Nana. So... Again, this is one of those situations where I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is a Nana with a beard, just like Aphrodite sometimes has a beard. It's all the same guy, and it's a hermaphroditic character, and it's the savior. But in, I'm probably intentionally, all of this is get, getting completely obfuscated by the uh, allegories of people who came later and wrote stories to apply to these old inscriptions, carving sculptures, etc. <laughs> so now we have a big confusing mess of like a bazillion different gods and goddesses. When we're talking about the same guy the whole time through every system and every version, I mean, look at the symbolism. It might as well be scales. <laughs> he's on the boat. He's got the horns. Aphrodite is shown with a beard all the time. That happens all the time. Who, you know, this is probably anyway, I just wanted to, to, <laughs> Just wanted to validate, yeah. affirm for for Higgins' sake, fight fighting for a great mind that was mostly swept away into the dustbin of forgotten uh, geniuses. That the moon symbol is—it's also a symbol of horns. <laughs> you know, you can see the horns of this crescent moon, but it's a symbol of the ark. And mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure so, it's like a I'm, Steiner thing or just like a general I, I, occultism idea think, that the moon is the container or the ark that holds on to the souls of the dead between incarnations, that there's some kind of like storage element to the moon as well. And Hey, that applies to the cornucopia in a sense. It's like storage, you know, for the, the life mm-hmm. in between its cycle. It's been take plucked off the vine, so to speak. So it's been removed from, that's right. You know, it, where it's alive, it's kind of in limbo, and then it's going to go become part of something else. That's where the the spiritual moonagerial class presumes to be <laughs> processing our papers. <laughs> moonagerial <laughs> class. Uh, but you know, chance. I'm uh, I I'm looking at this picture in particular, and I, like just spitballing. Uh, what if this is the two different routes to the Americas? What if on one part of the season, let's just say the fall, you take, uh, you would take, I'm just making this off the top of my head, but you would go from 
well, more southerly route from like the tip of Africa or Morocco, and you would come into the Caribbeans through a southerly route in one part of the year. And then if you want to go back to the east, you have to take a much more northerly route and go around on an arc uh, following different seasonal currents. And the reason I say that is because look at the difference in the lengths of his le- his pant legs. It's like one pant leg is long, the other pant leg is short. He's got one hand going down and the other hand is almost steering up north as though to say the leg of one journey takes this many whatever markations and the leg of Royal the other journey cubits. is much longer. Yeah, totally. There could be a there just, there. Just a weave. Well, another weave that I want to put on top of this is how, you know, since this arc crescent moon shape also seems to represent horns, and this is obviously a wisdom character, and the arc shape or the horns is on his head, and arche in Greek means both wisdom and head, can we not assume that the character that we see with horns is representation of wisdom, which is the name of which is the meaning of the name Metis as well, who is Phanes, who is anagrammatical for Themis. Yes. Pant leg almost looks like a fan. It's a good one, Logic. Fan. I see. You're a Logic fan. (laughs) Gabe, I I think I need to pick up the pace for us here. Uh, I'm looking at what's left. I think we should move forward. You man. Yeah, buddy. Okay. Still jump out though. You know, if you got to jump on, on a a weave, don't let me stop you, but I got to keep the pace going. So next thing is, well, of course they, they get to this train where a bunch of pole folk are, you know, rioting because they aren't allowed on the train. We can't help with Disney Marvel. We can't help bring in classism into the extinction event. (laughs) Of course, got to. I just love that. Thank you for that. Now they're getting on a train, a passenger train in dream symbolism. Always consider this stuff in dream symbolism is symbolic of your wish to connect to other people. But it can also show your disconnection from the people around you. You know, if you wish to connect with other people, that means you're coming from a state of disconnect. So it's oddly, probably intentionally very specific type of symbolism for Loki and Sylvie who are disconnected from other people and have been for a very long time. And they're starting to maybe subconsciously seeking to wish to connect with, with others, or at least Loki is, you know, cause in this scene, he actually has like a, <laughs> he creates some Bach revelry with all the people on the train. We see as they, are now boarding the train, the pouring of the wine, the libations, because, hey, this is Bacchus. Loki is Bacchus. Uh, Dionysus, god of the wine. Noah, giver of wine, creator of wine. Here's the, you know, and we recall the opening shot of this whole episode is the Mai Tais, the very first thing we see. So we're kind of coming full circle here. The, the champagne is being poured. She turns it down. He drinks hers because, you know, he's ready to go double on it. And now we start talking about the 
they start talking about their mothers because that's what you do when you're opening up on a date. <laughs> Talk about your family. She's the queen of Asgard and the queen of heaven, thus. And he says she was pure, purely good, purely decent. Pure is Virgo, but decent is the descent that begins following that in Libra. You know, Virgo or uh, Libra is Venus, queen of heaven, and she's purely descent. Because when you reach that point, you're about to descend. And it's, you know, the descending sign to the 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 lamb, Aries. You know, it's 180 degrees on the zodiac from there. And they start both talking about how they were adopted. Well, that's part of the Bacchus Dionysus mythology as well. Totally adopted. Even you could consider even Jesus adopted by his his human father, Joseph. That's part of the system as well, that the son of God is adopted by, often by shepherds of some sort. That happens repeatedly. And a lot of this episode and, and this scene and this show in general is about the feminized man and the, the masculine female. Because as they're talking to each other and they both admit to uh, swinging both ways, <laughs> the this lady comes up wearing like a man's suit that hands them the drinks. Although I think Loki is starting to snap out of the whole uh, <laughs> by curiousness of his, his previous gamma behavior and he's becoming the more heroic masculine because in this part, when they're sitting down, he really did not want to ride the train backwards. <laughs> he doesn't want to fall backwards anymore. He doesn't want to fall ass first into things anymore. You know, he's starting to uh, evolve. He's he's seeing, he's starting to gain some wisdom uh, as he's heading into this fall scene. But important to point out as we're considering the gender bending symbolism so prominent in. Crowley and stuff in Disney stuff, big time that in this simulation theory type of Gnosticism, the world is fake fallen created by the, the fake gas demiurge, et cetera, et cetera. I think that the idea of equilibrium being offered as a potential interpretation of the adjustment card or justice card is the equilibrium between the poles being that stalemate that he and Sylvie have been in throughout this episode where it's stasis, the equilibrium between them actually nullifying their generative principles, which is what gender bending does. If you get a, if you get a girly man and a manly girl together, they're probably not going to be very fruitful. <laughs> we see that in society with birth rates falling. So nullifying the generative powers with this, gender bending to create equilibrium, adding to each thing its opposite, right? Adding to the man feminine, more femininity, adding to the female more masculinity. This is destroying manifestation, as Crowley says in that description of the adjustment card, which they say is Maya or illusion. They even say, you know, speaking of adding things to their opposites, they have a conversation here about love. And it's one of the descriptions of love that is offered is maybe love is hate. And <laughs> I guess in a, you know, a hermetic sense of 
there's no such thing as opposites, just the one thing and it's lack, then yes, hate is actually just love in a lesser degree. That is actually true. I, I would consider that true. But, you know, we see the nullification idea. Maybe love is hate that kind of cancels out the whole affair, right? And also interesting to point out that neither of these characters speak of their father while they're talking about their themselves and their families. And generally speaking, homosexuality very commonly corresponds with a bad or absent dad relationship. <laughs> That's a big part of it. So there, there's a funny thing that happens too, where uh, he's asking her if she's got a boyfriend and she says that she has, she managed to maintain quite a serious relationship with a postman. And she very, very strongly emphasizes post a post man in the dialogue. And I'm like, well, who's the postman? Nice. <laughs> this is the herb is the postman. <laughs> that's what, you know, that's what was the single, what's the single, um, lesbian Jesus got to do. He's got to use this, this herm, herm dildo. <laughs> She's lesbian Jesus. Dude. Man. <laughs> perfect. <sighs> perfect. It's there though. I mean, why would they emphasize postman? Right? I mean, I think we're talking terminus right. or or terms. It's totally there. Kyle gets it. <laughs> I'm not just seeing things. You guys all get it. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, not every day that you get to say dildo so in a scholarly is, and academic way. <laughs> <laughs> so this this scene in particular uh, has so many elements of that uh, adjustment card, um, specifically the uh, the shape of the windows that both of their heads are inside of is a, 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 a strange diamond. It's a, a kind of a kilted diamond. Uh, it's, it's, it's just imperfect enough. Uh, um, but also chance, do you, do you notice the pattern of the, of oh, the, dude, that's the, uh, that's the Fornax. That's the Fornax constellation. That's what the shape is behind their heads. Very. Yes. And what and is they're the talking about fornication. Universal symbol for swing. This conversation is about fornication, about and the fornix constellation shape is behind their heads. There it is. Totally. And what is the universal symbol for swingers? It's a pineapple. Yeah. Right now, they are inside of a giant pineapple. That is the symbol for do you do you fornicate? I fornicate. Do you fornicate? We'll put out your pineapple so we can all assume, signal each other that we're down for some pineapple swinger action. Oh. And now, and what's on the top? You know what's on the top of to, Bacchus's staff? The thyrsus is the pine cone with the same exact type of patterning. The big, and Bacchus is all about those orgiastic, orgiastic Bacchic revelry. Yes. Now, one thing about swinging. Yes. One thing about the pine cone, 
I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to take away the fun. I don't want to make, I, I, I think things should be fun and remain like mischievous and ornery. I don't want to take any of the fun away, but I think that pine cone is a form of uh, medicinal application uh, through the ass that circumvents the digestive system because some medicines, you put it in one side, it doesn't work. There's actually preventative measures in your digestion. So they can literally put medicine in the ass. That's, I think, what the pine cone is secretly encoding. Suppository. But we're not going to tell people that. We're gonna, it's a suppository encode. But we're going to keep it stoochy You can just say that instead of that. saying, stick it in the ass. You can say suppository. <laughs> it's, it's, more, totally. it's more like refined totally. language. Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but this is why, this is why if, you, uh, if you pull up any of the graphics uh, that I've been sending, the, um, the sword card, the ace of swords from the Thoth deck in particular, is is um, absolutely one hundred percent encoded into the scenery of this scene right here. It's so glorious and obvious to me. Um, but that uh, the Thoth deck Ace of Swords card came up in a, a weave with the spiders uh, last year when um, Marg, uh, uh, what's her name? She went to prison for insider trading. Margaret. Uh, Oh, she does the, she's a interior design cook. Uh, I keep wanting to say Margaret Thatcher, but that's not it. Um, she did a commercial last year where she chops a pineapple with a sword. She's in the kitchen. Oh, Martha Stewart. This, this, Martha Stewart is sharpening a sword and she chops the top off of a pineapple while she's talking about unwelcome house guests that are the COVID-19, the whole thing was like a swinger encode, uh, but they used it as a commercial to sell a, uh, to sell jabs. Um, but they did it. They released it on the same week that um, the uh, Tonga event, there was a volcano on the Island of Tonga that Looks like the rod of God, where they dropped something huge and blew that that whole place up. But it happened the same week that she did her pineapple uh, commercial. Do you have that card? Because you can't. It's so visual. Uh, the ace of ace of yeah, ace of swords card is so clearly the sword that Martha Stewart was swinging, and it's a pineapple. If you you could pull up any of the graphics I sent in Telegram too, I, there's a couple of pineapples on there. But that that came up the same day that the Tonga event happened, and look how how much it resembles a pineapple. It resembles a nuclear explosion, the way that it's described to us. Hmm. Uh, but it's, and it's also um, the interior of that of the bar where they're sitting down having a couple drinks, is literally like they're inside of a pineapple. You see the the golden ring yeah. that the sword is penetrating into. 
that golden ring is literally the crown of the bar in the scene where they're in the train having a couple of drinks together. So, uh, or the sphincter, yeah, if, if we're <laughs> or the sphincter, totally. totally. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. I mean, Kyle just pointed out that the pineapple's botanical name is Anan Ananas in an ass. PK wants to know does the pineapple have to be splayed in a certain way to be swinger symbolism (laughs) all I know is that the people that were down to like do that to be you know join in some couples fun and some bacchic orgiastic revelry back when I went to music festivals you'd see people walking around just carrying a pineapple with them like it was their pet and that was their code that was like I'm game do you want you want to you know, so I, I don't know, maybe like you see cars out with a pineapple sticker on the back of the car or it's just that's just what it is. The pineapple symbol. It, uh, it, and, and isn't it interesting just, that the sword is you swing the sword. And so even back then, when we, Crowley was making that deck, he had the presence of mind to use the swinger symbol of the pineapple with the swinger symbol of the sword. And they're in a bar right now having drinks and deciding whether they're going to fornax a Kate or not. (laughs) Very, very interesting. Oh, and he tries to convince her to take a nap. He like says, Oh, you should, we need to relax before the big show. You should go to sleep. So even in there, there's like, was that a roofie? Was that a roofie nod? Like who sleeps in a bar safely? That's true. She does take a nap. Wow. I'm I'm just seeing all the good stuff that got put into the vibrant telegram call in line. Interesting thing about the pineapple being an Anna-ness is Anna is the mother of Mary. Anna also is the year. That's all in there too. So <laughs> Back to the Fornax constellation, we get taken to the outside of the train for an establishing shot of time passing, right? And you see this big diamond shape fallen into the ground, right. and it's very slow. It's like, you know, it defies all logic of what you'd think a big meteor impact would look like. It just slowly boom, goes into the ground. But back to the wow. idea of the fall. And that, you know, now I'm starting to see, too, how biblically speaking, it's fornication. But, you know, Adam knowing that he's naked, his wife knowing that they're naked and being like the sexual attraction that causes the fall, which is also what causes them to generate more life. And for the timeline to begin, they enter time at that point, because in the Garden of Eden, it's timeless. They're in this eternal stasis of perfection. So the fall and the beginning of time are absolutely symbolically linked and related to the the awakening of the generative powers in the male and the female and the you know seeing each other in the mirror and <laughs> what comes after that when a man loves a woman <laughs> uh, now we see Loki's drinking the wine. You know, he gets drunk and he whips the mortals up into his Bacchic frenzy. He starts singing this song about when she sings, she sings, come home. 
It's very, you go look up the lyrics of what they're saying in the Norse or yeah, I think it's Nor- Norwegian or something that they're calling Asgardian. And it's basically that it's basically a song that's about like Inanna calling Tamas back from the underworld. That's essentially what the lyrics are. And, you know, in case we weren't sure about that whole Tamas symbolism, Bacchus is Tamas, etc. Uh, and the adjustment orbs are all over this scene. There's one on the table. There's one behind her head. As you're watching this scene, you just see these Ooh. orbs everywhere. And it's interesting that the orbs are showing up in the two scenes that have to do with the libations, the Mai Tais and the, the wine. Bing, 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 and bing. And at this point of the year in Libra is when the wine is getting made, you know? Harvested in Virgo, made in Libra into wine, fermented. All of that is happening. Very interesting. So it's like they they know the symbolism. They're doing it on purpose, maybe. Or it's just coming through because it's something universal and par- archetypes as part of human consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> so then they have another little conversation about love while she's sort of chastising him for his partying down while she's taking a nap and they have this whole metaphor about love is a dagger you can see yourself in it and then she reaches for it and it said when you reach for it it isn't real and it disappears so this is back to the whole thing i was just describing about how like the love the generative power eros is symbolic of the entering into maya or illusion and recall that the yadhe vavhe tetragrammaton four-letter name of God, transliterates to a lot of different things. We already brought up that it's Eve, but one of the other transliterations, Yod, can be a J. And so yad he vav can be J-O-V-E or J-E-V-E. That's Jove. But remember, Yov and Yod can be an I. So I-O-V-E is Yov, but the, the I glyph letter looks like L. You know, it looks like our English L. So, Yov is love. Yadhe Vave is love. It's right there. <laughs> and so they're saying that love, aka Jove, is Maya, illusion. This is that thing, you know, that it's Brahme Maya. It's the mother father. It's the hermaphrodite. It's Phanes, essentially. Also, the dagger is symbolic of air, mind, wind, all of that air element stuff, thought, thoth, right? That's all in the mix. Uh, But yeah, we're getting told basically that love isn't real, (laughs) that what keeps us in illusion is our dance with the opposite, what we perceive as our opposite, the other, the external. Um, Then the guys come in. Sir, can we see your tickets before they get into a big fight scene with the guards? Uh, This calls us back to the first episode where he needs his tab at the TVA. A ticket is a tab and the tab is an anagram for TVA, Tav. It's basically, you know, your tab is your ticket, your debt. It's your debt. It's what you owe. They didn't pay to be on the train, so they're in debt. Debt is death. Death is chasing them at this point as they are trying to escape from death. 
and it's you no, know, they're entering into the fall. So that's there. Now <laughs> we also see, remember the justice and adjustment card, the, the justice character has a sword and if it wasn't clear, Sylvie does carry a sword. If anybody wants to take a stab at interpreting those runes sometime, Whoa. please feel free. I uh, don't know the runes well enough to be able to tell you what that's supposed to be explaining story-wise. But some people on the internet were saying that it had to do with her relationship with Thor. So I guess she has a version of Thor in her her timeline as well something like that but it's a very cool sword prop i will say that she stabs some guys with it yeah it is. times i like it they get thrown <laughs> off the train though loki gets thrown off the train first because he's acting foolish remember he's the fool she's the adjustment card god and goddess he gets thrown off the train <laughs> and she's very upset with him and he's like i can't help it i'm hedonistic it's what I do. And she's like, I'm more hedonistic than you. So they're both establishing their Bakian, Aphrodite-ian, Hermaphrodite-ian hedonism. And then she walks away, you know, all this eruption of explosions and volcanic-like activity of the planet being destroyed around nice. them. And she does the scream, which we talked about last episode. The scream being Hell intrinsically yeah. related to our... uh Krakatoa eruption weave big deal there. And yeah, the scenery here is very much like the eruption of a volcano, you know, with all this igneous looking rock stuff falling from the sky. And then she does the scream yes. and he's like, did that make you feel totally. better? She's like, you should try it sometime. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's a, there's a inaccurate, there's an inaccuracy here uh, in this, in this transition. And that is that we, after Loki jumps out the window of the train, he no longer has his jacket. It just vanishes. And some people think that there was a cut scene, that there's a missing scene here. But his jacket just is, is no longer an artifact of the, of, the, of the cinematic experience. And in a second, he's about to say that the, that the temp pad was destroyed when he jumped out the window. But I want to I, I want to identify the fact that uh, whatever the protocol for police should identify themselves and they need to identify you and you need to make sure that you're the person that they actually are looking for and that, that they're, they're not just grabbing the wrong person. That uh, dynamic is actually like thrown to the wind five different ways in the series that is Loki. And that is that in the beginning, nobody knows Loki, but they're trying to arrest him. Every time he gets arrested, the people arresting him don't even identify themselves. So the entire protocol for what it is to be arrested is screwed up 16 different ways. If As you watch the series of the film, they never once do they get it right how you're supposed to formalize who you are, who they are, who sent them. Where is their warrant? Where is the judge's signature? Where's the two witnesses on this that signed off with the judge? None of that is observed. It's all completely foobard. And I just think it's fascinating that here. Well, he and it doesn't it create really. the illusion. It creates the illusion that a lot of cinema creates that the all powerful government and police can just come and take you away at any time without any procedure 
of you needing to even understand? Yes. Yes. And the thing, the thing is, if you're paying attention, it's really bad in the beginning of the Loki series where you're like, that's not how arrest is supposed to go. It only gets worse. They actually screw it up increasingly more so until by the end of the series, it's, it's even more totalitarian, tyrannical uh, than it already is today. So they're moving the Overton window in a really bad way through the arc of the film. So I just wanted to say that, and it's, I don't think it's a mistake that he loses the variant label right after the cops tried to snatch him up. It's almost like they tried to grab him and he ran away and they were left holding the jacket. It's kind mm-hmm. of what, um, it's kind of not explicit, but that's kind of going on behind the scenes subconsciously is what I'm getting at. Interesting. Yeah. The jacket disappears. I, I missed that detail or it just seemed logical in some way. Well, while they're talking, the jacket, they, oh, by, by, by the way, I got to say this, the jacket is your crime record. Your criminal record is called your jacket in, in the, in prison. That's what they call your criminal history is called your jacket. So when really? Beck has that, yeah. So Beck has a song. They say, I want a girl with a, uh, Oh, there's a, Isn't lyric. Cake? I want a girl with, Cake, thank you. Yes. Short skirt, long with jacket. A, with a short skirt and a long, long jacket. He draws it out. He's actually saying, I want a girl with a long criminal record. Oh, and <laughs> prisoners put false jackets on other prisoners. Like if you say he's a child molester, it's in his nice. jacket, then they might get killed in prison, even if it isn't in their is jacket. It- and that's, wow. they're addressing you. This is how they jacket. address you. Isn't that a trip? So, yeah, wow. I just wanted to point out while he's avoiding the law, he's also getting rid of his jacket. So he's going through an identity, a shedding of identity. Getting rid of his false jacket. His criminal Maybe, record. Yeah. Wow. Now I'm never going to look at jackets in film the same way. That's a good Isn't call, that, dude. Yeah. And she has a long, long jacket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, her jacket is way longer than his. Good call. Totally, totally. So they decide that they're going to go uh, stow away on the ark, right? And that's how they're going to survive this because they broke the temp pad. I kind of skipped over that detail. But she's just, he wants to know how her enchantment works because... She knows a lot about him. He opened up to her. You know, he told her what was on in his jacket, <laughs> but he doesn't know about her jacket. So please tell me how your enchantment works, at least. And she decides to trust him. They're having this moment of trust. They're getting closer to their equilibrium. And she explains that her mind control powers, her enchantment powers, she has to make physical contact and then grab hold of their mind. That's what entertainment means, literally means to enter and hold the mind. And she says for stronger minds, she has to. Oh, what does she say? Oh, yeah, I have it in the next slide. For stronger minds, she has to create a fantasy from their memories. So like what what works on us, man? What works on us to, to hold our minds occupied, me and you? You know, fairly strong minds, I would say. The nostalgia spell. 
If they can hit us with the nostalgia spell, create a fantasy from our memories, better chance of entertainment of grabbing hold of the mind. It's very interesting. Uh, like that's a very explicit direct, dis- direct definition of the word entertainment. You know, it's like, <laughs> that's, it's like the hypnotist swinging the watch in front of you and saying, you're getting sleepy. <laughs> you know, they're t- it's, totally. it's, it's, it's working on you while they're telling you exactly what it is. It's amazing. Right. And uh, I, I just point out the nostalgia spell has the Epimetheus is looking backwards. In uh, Epimetheus, he fell for the Pandora. Prometheus, who was the intended target of the Pandora, he was like, "Nah, I'm good. I don't, I don't need her holding me back." So his brother uh, fell for Pandora and fell for her trick. Uh, so I just think that that's interesting. That you know, the the nostalgia spell is is too much Epimetheus, and the pro, the cure is just stay uh, goal oriented. Hmm. And she specifically talked about C20 in this scene and how she was a regular person on earth before she fought for the TVA and she loved margaritas and those weren't margaritas. Those were Mai Tais, but it margarita is an interesting word because it's the stone of the sea. And remember about back when I was reading that quote about the manna from heaven, heaven is the sea, right? She's C20 and the stone is like the philosopher's stone. There's a lot there as well. Just in the word margarita, but we won't linger on that. Uh, here's another shot where you see they're, they're getting to the town where the ark is at. That's the ark, but it's really like a tower or a rocket. And you see the moon and the ark together. That to me, that's like what I was talking about. The moon and the ark, same thing. And see all the people flooding the streets. Book of Lamentations, verse 12, they say to their mothers, where is corn and wine when they swooned as the wounded in the streets of the city when their soul was poured out in their mother's bosom? This is the scene where the imagery of the Book of Lamentations gets really palpable if you go read that. All of the like panic in the street (laughs) and destruction happening. And there's corn and wine, you know, the horn of radiance, the wine we're in, Lady Luck, Lady Justice, God of Love, Goddess of Love, Goddess of War. It's all right there. And this shot. People going this way and that. (laughs) We see Loki with the Lunasca right next to him as well. This is the basically the moment where they're they're fully crossing the threshold of the Analemma right here which is, I believe, why yep. we're being shown this symbol right now, is the analemma is the crossing point where you go over the equinoxes. So they're crossing the equinox into the fall. And now they're really on the hopeless side, the death side, the winter side, as the tower is struck with lightning. <laughs> the arc is gone. You hear this song called dark moon by bonnie guitar great golden oldie play and it's roll credits you know so that the, the final moments of the scene is or the the episode is the crossing of the analemma and the limnascate 
I think this is a good point to nice. talk about what I see as the big theme of this episode to bring it up again, that in like the Crowleyan sense or the dark magician sense, equilibrium or justice or adjustment is stasis. See, these scales are in perfect balance. They're not moving. It's pure stasis. Stasis is death, though. You know, the Garden of Eden before the flow of love, essentially, and Eros, the savior appearing, the child, you know, and when it's just God and goddess with no child, it's sterile. It, it's death. Canceling, as Crowley explains the way equilibrium works, and maybe it's meant to be mental allegory, but it sounds a lot like it's describing canceling out the yin and yang forces by balancing them to destroy the illusion of manifest reality, a.k.a. death, oblivion, non-existence, no more birth, right? That seems to be the way it's interpreted by the powers that should not be with the whole <laughs> agenda to annihilate as much of humanity as possible, make nature as uninhabitable as possible. And theoretically, based on what I understand of the the as the mystery school that if you did that then we would actually regenerate into a garden of eden state that that would be the end would become the beginning the end the end becoming the beginning and the circuitous nature of the osiris character is going to be part of the season two in a big way but if if this is one way to understand equilibrium or the justice point the other way this is the death way you know pure balance, stasis. The other way to understand equilibrium is flow, exchange, that type of balance. I think the water cycle on our world is a perfect example of that. That, you know, it, it goes, evaporates into the air, becomes the clouds, floats over to some place that needs some water, falls, finds its way into the ground, into the streams, into the rivers. And remember, the Bacchus characters are always, you know, Bacchus means stream. so. I would like to imagine a world, maybe even the world where this symbolism originated from before being co-opted by the <laughs> those who never really understood the uh, the system and what it was trying to teach about nature. Imagine if the druids or the priest class at one point were mediators between free and independent clans, families, races, where through this mediation by the wisdom keepers, the illusions of false and unnatural hierarchies, restrictions, man's law at odds with natural law, the laws of nature, that's life affirming. You know, that's where birth becomes the norm. Abundance is everywhere. <laughs> you guys see the difference between the two versions of Justice or adjustment, balance, equilibrium being stasis and death, or it's equilibrium of flow and it's life. Everything is unrestricted in its ability to flow and exchange. I think philosophically, both versions are correct and true. I think nature respects either choice and it's up to us to decide which one we want to achieve in our life, what type of equilibrium we want to achieve. And I think that's one of the primary questions posed by this episode, uh, intentionally or not, maybe even this whole series. And 
Oh, <laughs> and the, the last thing I wanted to throw on top of this is the, uh, something that PK shared in the Colin line. And I think this is from a, a book about gematria and numer, numerological wisdom that I have somewhere in the recesses of some phone or some hard drive, but I lost track of it. So maybe PK will kindly resend me the PDF. But he says about the number 35 that we brought up earlier in the show, Pythagoreans called the number 35 harmony. This implies the perfect equilibrium of coordinated forces and agrees with the other meaning of seven. 35 is the sum of eight and 27, the cubes of two and nine. Thus, it represents the perfected expression of wisdom, which is two, combined with the fully manifested expression of understanding, three, because the cube or threefold multiplication of a number symbolizes the complete manifestation of the power of that number. Harmony, the perfect equilibrium of coordinated forces. That's exact. I'm so glad you shared that because that's exactly what I'm trying to express with this, you know, the water cycle and this stream here at the end. And that's what the system was meant to be leading us to with the idea of justice, balance, equilibrium, because in the fall, when winter comes and a bunch of stuff dies, it's not, it's not stasis death. It's an exchange where that energy just flows into a different form that you have to have that destruction for the regeneration and for new life to emerge. It's part of a cycle. It's not the, destruction or the ending of manifestation as Crowley describes it. That's not what equilibrium is trying to tell us. So this like Gnostic death cult that has definitely, you know, Thelema and Crowley seem to be uh, expressing is I think an inversion, an inversion of interpretation of what, what came before. And uh, that's, uh, those are my thoughts on the matter, Gabriel. Nice, buddy. Nice weave, man. Yeah, this was a fun episode. Um, I guess, uh, can you bring up my only, uh, my most recent uh, deposit on on our personal telly? Uh, This is my only hanging Chad. Uh, And this is something that I think is a fascinating. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, buddy. (laughs) This is so funny. what I'm kind of marveling at is how many different triggers can can be attached to a single mechanism. And that is really what just keeps, I think of them as tethers or strings, um, these connections uh, or these ideas that attach to this anchoring, this symbolic anchoring. And so the temp pad is essentially the MacGuffin of one MacGuffin in the series. And the shape of it has been uh, uh, imprinting onto me uh, the aspects of the uh, Fornax constellation because of that archway, that semicircle uh, is very distinct. Well, sure enough, uh, somebody recently um, entered the stars. Casey from Enter the Stars, he did an episode on the Kopesh, the symbol of the Kopesh, which relates to the uh, the symbol of the cough, 
And sure enough, he has extracted the uh, Trump Mar-a-Lago layout. Trump's pad has the shape of this kopesh or this semicircle, uh, which is uh, depicted here. And that letter, depending on what culture you're at, if you go to the Greeks, it's kolf. I'm sorry, if you go to the Hebrews, it's kolf. If you go to the Greeks, it's more, uh, has been considered the phi, the symbol for phi, P-H-I. Now that symbol is a powerful trigger. So if you're looking at it from the Hebrews, it could be Kopf 19. And Kopf 19 just triggered a lot of people for a couple of years straight. And so for this to be Kopf 19, because it's the 19th letter, makes it a fascinating trigger, a fascinating MacGuffin. But then if you look at it as phi, it has more of a, a, a PHI relationship, which makes it your personal health information. PHI is the acronym for personal health information, which was again a trigger for a couple, for two or three years, where everybody's, uh, I guess you could say, interests were exposed. Everybody had this common, the shared vulnerability around your PHI, around your personal health information. Yeah, so whether or not you were like pro shots or against shots, all of that had to be drug out into the open and a spotlight put on it for many people. It was no longer a private question. Yes, exactly. And so what that does when they draw your privacy into the public, they're literally, uh, they have, that is the ultimate vulnerability. And so what you identify as, the way you think, your internal sanctuary, all of that is actually violated by any implication that they're going to pull out something that you don't want to give. Um, so the personal health information is a, just a fascinating vulnerability in the system. That, well, it's the uh, jacket. Always, <laughs> it's, your, it's your rap sheet. It's like a rap sheet, isn't it? That's it is. that's a good weave too. So yeah, all of these things that keep record of you or you know expose things that you wouldn't want people to know about you, uh, they are. They really are all just more uh, proof that identity is the is the principal vulnerability. Our identity is the first thing that makes us vulnerable, and I just uh, I just see that as a. Uh, kind of the universal shared all uh, uh, gimmick that we all relate to, uh, that potential hazard. And strangely enough, it's all encoded in the temp pad. (laughs) The chump pad. I mean, for women, the word pad, it's the the chump pad, totally. And for women, the word pad kind of has a privacy thing, right? And for men, it's the man pad. So that way it has a, so even from two different genders, the word pad has this uh, different, they both imply privacy that should never be put out in the public, but they're also sacred to both genders. Reverse pad and you have DAP, but with the interchangeable letters in that, it's tab. They're keeping tabs on you. Keeping tabs. You you keep tabs on a pad. You write it on a pad tab and pad and it's your debt it's if you if your phi is you know if the if your jacket comes up unclean 
leprosy. You're, you know, you've got, you failed the cooties test or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you're now in a debt to society. You're in danger of death. All of the above. It's yeah. Pat, I think that there's something to it, man. I hadn't even thought about the pad and tab being uh palindrome to one another, philologic pal- yeah. palindromes, but they are the tab pad, pad tab. Right. Right. I love it. Yeah, man. Your record, keeping you on the record. <laughs> Which is that circular part of the te- ten pad as well. Yeah. And time. Yep. You spin me right round, baby, right round, like a record, baby, right round. All right. <laughs> <laughs> You good to wrap it, dude? I think yeah, we did a great, yeah, man. We did a great job, man. Some f- crazy things fell out when we shook this tree tonight. Uh, I'm still going to be thinking about that sylphium and whether or not that symbol on those coins is really a plant called sylphium or if it's something else entirely. There's a lot of, uh-huh. you know, the more closer you bring the magnifying glass to this stuff, the more blurry it all gets. It's very fishy. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, this is a fun one. I'm really enjoying the series. The more we dig into it, the more it uh, it reveals itself to be more and more playful. And it only gets better. I mean, I know where things are going. It really does. It picks up and gets really interesting, especially yeah. in season two. I'm looking I'm looking forward to where this stuff is all going. I know we're doing all this groundwork just to get us caught up to season two so we can talk about the real weird shit. It's going to be fun. Yeah, man. And, you know, something that I think this is going to do for me. Uh, this is kind of something I'm, I'm sussing out that, that these constellations, there's there there's a system going on to it. And the, dif- the difference is actually very important. Like for me, I know that Ara Altair is over here in Sagittarius uh, going into Capricorn. I know that the Fornax is over there in Aquarius more. And they can't, you can't conflate the two, but they're very similar. They're very similar. And that's something I've seen. Ara Altair actually becomes more important going forward. And the Fornax is parallel, but not I, not exactly the same. And so these are two symbols that I'm just going to keep track as we go forward. Like there's the Altair and there's the Fornax. They seem to almost be like um, if you do something at the altar, it's almost as though you should expect the Fornax to respond. It's almost like the altar mm. is where you prepare, chop up the, 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 the veggies, and then the fornax is where you go actually cook it. So I just wanted to put that on the table. I think I'm seeing some of the, the recipes of how these implements work uh, in the cosmic al- alchemy laboratory of the heavens. So as we wrap up, guys, I want to offer you the opportunity to support my work here. You know, these, these weaves, I don't just sit down and let her rip. It takes often two or even three days of a lot of the, a lot of preparation and thinking about it. And <laughs> Prometheus, Prometheus, forethought <laughs> <laughs> and uh, being frank, you know, the, the view counts we, we currently pull for, for the channel. They're not like going to get me any kind of view revenue. So I do this because I love it. I'm going to keep doing these weaves because this is the most interesting thing for me right now. But hey, if it's valuable to you and you want me to get paid for my job tonight, 
Hit me up with a super chat, donate on PayPal, cash app, etc. Lots of ways to do it. Uh, buy some merch, you know, get yourself something in exchange, get some typical new herbs. I just bought some more Kapow tonight off of Kyle. <laughs> He's in the chat. I'm glad to see him here. So yeah, support what you love. If you love us, Gabe's got a cash app as well. Slick dissident on cash app. And with that, we will see you on the next one. We might even pick this up on Wednesday and we may be overloading people with the Loki stuff. So we could, we could do a, a different vibrant on Wednesday, but it's kind of an open time slot. So we'll see, but we are going to continue this series sooner than later. And good night, everyone. Love y'all. Have a great evening. Let's love y'all.